This is a Hot Pie Media Original. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, is professional therapy done securely online. I've gotten therapy. There's no shame in that ever. So if you feel like you need to take next steps and stick around for a discount code at the end, BetterHelp will assess your needs, match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And since they are committed to facilitating solid therapeutic matches, they make it easy and free to change therapist if needed. You can start communicating in under 48 hours, schedule weekly video or phone sessions, and log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. It's available worldwide and more affordable than traditional therapy. And guess what else? Financial aid is available too. I think that's a huge statement about BetterHelp because, man, therapy is not easy. I know the year that I was going through my divorce, we wanted to go through divorce uh, care counseling the whole time. And man, we spent like $60,000, money that honestly we didn't have, but we were trying to help each other, help ourselves and having someone that will come in and support and make it affordable for all. You know, I think that's very important and speaks highly of BetterHelp. BetterHelp really wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website at BetterHelp. That's H-E-L-P dot com. Read some reviews and take the next step to take charge of your mental health because you are an overcomer. Special offer for Overcome with Justin Wren listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Overcome. Again, that's BetterHelp.com slash Overcome. Welcome to Overcome with Justin Wren. Wow, do we have an incredible podcast for you today. It was an incredible conversation with my good friend, Anthony Esperance, and he is in the band Papa Roach. I'm sure you've heard the song Last Resort, or if you haven't heard their music, please Go check out some of it soon. What's one of their new songs? I forgot what he said. The time. Well, he said his favorite was Bl- Falling Apart. Falling Apart is yeah. one of his. But he's got, they've like got Kill a new the album noise coming out. Is Kill the Noise album is, their, coming is their, out. their tour and tour. the new album that's coming out. Yeah. And he is an incredible song writer, but his story is pretty powerful. I might have waited a little bit to get to it, but his brother was actually one of the founding members of Papa Roach, his half brother. And then uh, I mean, he's awesome. Tobin. And it was crazy how he found out about, I mean, he knew his brother, but hadn't really had a relationship with him. And then all of a sudden he was 10 years old and he was, uh, last resort was put into the CD player with his father. And all of a sudden the next week he saw him on Jay Leno the next week, David Letterman, the next week, um, I guess TRL with Carson Daly, total request request live. If you remember that. And Anthony's story is powerful. I met him at treatment. I met him at the drug uh, facility or the substance use disorder facility, treatment facility. And it was absolutely awesome getting to know him. He instantly became one of my best friends there. And he's honestly becoming one of my better friends that I've had throughout my life. You'll hear a story. You'll be inspired by the musician that he is and the creative side of his life and how he blesses the world with all of that. But you also see his struggle and him having to overcome his alcoholism. I think I'll have him on for another show because we didn't cover his whole story, but we did get what we could. 
And it was powerful. And plus, it'll be interesting to have him back on when you guys are deeper in your recovery. Yeah. And just to see how that progresses, you know, since you're both really like on the same timeline, kind yeah. of. So Yeah, I actually got into treatment a day or two before him. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up staying an extra week or two um, or two weeks. And so it's been cool that I got in there before he did. He left before I did. So he kind of had the real world adjustment before I did. We're able to catch up and keep each other kind of accountable and also encouraged. I'd say mostly encouraged. And, uh, but a big part of being encouraged is keeping each other accountable, making sure we're doing the right thing. So he's into his like 43rd or 44th day sober. Oh, so, yeah. And I'm into my 54th. Mm-hmm. And so it's pretty awesome that, that we're, I didn't doing realize you were together. keeping count so close. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, um, do you have like a little tracker or you just know every day? I just, I was asked a few days ago. Oh, like <laughs> so you just calculated ago, so I, it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, 50 was kind of a big one. And yeah. then so about to be two months. And do they at, do a chip for a hundred days or something? Uh, 90 days. 90. Yep. So a month, two months, three months. I'll mm-hmm. actually do it for every month for the first 12. Cool. And then uh, they do it year by year after that. They'll do cool. 18 months also. Uh, and you got to go to an AA meeting with me last night. Amy. I did. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. a meeting last night. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It was not my first one. So. Right. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, it was powerful. And so I think that him and I are going to be hitting some meetings together, going to some groups and yeah. Anyways, I'm uh, really grateful for who Anthony is. He's going to have a solo career coming yeah. out also at the same time he's playing with Papa Roach. And he is a guy that's, uh, you know, 10 years younger than his brother. That was the senior or, or founding member, mm-hmm. Tobin. Tobin, I suppose. But uh, it's going to be cool to watch him do both. Play play for Papa Roach. We'll go to one of the concerts. Then also being able to see a solo And career. you know what? Like you, who knows what he's capable of sober? You yeah. know, like he's wow. really experienced his whole music career mostly not yeah. sober. And that's so, true. you know, you're this, you, you have a lot. You have a lot of sober time too, but you are excited to see what heights you can reach yeah, when you're sober, fully sure. sober and really more than the sobriety healed, you yeah. know? So. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And don't say what heights you can reach with your hands waving funny because that was one of the most impactful. I thought, I thought don't you were, do that. I, no, I thought you were saying it in a joking way or not no. joking way, but an ex- exaggerating or a uh, way. <laughs> I thought that was one of the most powerful cards you wrote to me because I do want to know a life, know a life where I'm 10 years sober, 20 years sober, 30 years sober. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be encouraging to watch his journey. And, uh, well, thank you, pa- you for planning to live me. to 120, honey. So, yeah. uh, you could, you could be, uh, 70 what? years sober <laughs> more than that. You could be like, uh, 60, maybe. I don't know. 90, 85 90, years 80, sober. Or yeah, something. there we go. <laughs> uh, yeah. 120 is the new age. It's proven by friend David Sinclair. Anyways, uh, I'm so grateful for everyone that's listening. Please like, uh, rate, review, subscribe to the show. That means the world to us. Please let us know some comments on social media, my social media, Amy's social media, Anthony's social media. Um, and remember that overcome podcast at gmail.com. You can send us your own overcome story. Please do. We're going to be wrapping these up. We're getting things back in order now. And so we'll be wrapping these up with people's overcome stories. So we definitely yeah. want to be able to share those. Absolutely. I'm excited about that. Overcome podcast at Gmail. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you on it for sponsoring the show. We're going. Love it. I love you, brother. I love you. Anthony, you are the fucking man, bro. Coming from you? you? Yeah. Coming from you.
tell us who you are. Tell the, tell the, the listeners. My name is Anthony. Um, <laughs> <laughs> from Papa Roach. From Papa Roach, yes. Yeah. I, uh, I play Anthony, with the Anthony Esperance. Esperance, yes. It's, Esperance. Uh, yeah, I play with Papa Roach. Um, I've, been, I've been with them for about, well, I've been working for him for about 10 years. But as far as playing and, and being in the band, about four. And um, it's been an incredible journey, a wild ride. And that ride obviously came to a little halt with the pandemic. Right. So I decided to move myself to Austin and, and just be closer to some family and some other opportunities. Some of your family it would be your brother, Tobin, yes. who's also a founding member in the band. A badass human being. Yeah. And really he is. lives here in Austin. Yes. You guys just celebrated little Arrow's birthday, the day yeah. after Christmas. My your, niece. Your dude. niece. Shout out to Arrow, man. I Arrow. love you. Yeah. Yeah. He lives, uh, he lives here in Austin and just, you know, he was just gloating about the way of life and the people. And, and, and the cool thing that I've noticed of being here is, you know, I've been a city boy for the mm. last 10 years. I've always, I've been in Portland or Los Angeles right? and coming here and just meeting people that have ranches and like land <laughs> and space and yeah. no noise. I went, I'm in love. You're in love. I'm in love with oh, being here. That's awesome. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Austin's got that effect on basically everybody right now. That's what I'm hearing. Um, but yeah, man, I'm, I'm stoked to hear random side fact. Arrow's little friend is who? Bo. Bo. My niece has a friend named Bo. And when they're together, it's a little bow and arrow. A little bow and arrow are hanging, dude. That is badass. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. That is beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm really proud to have you on the show. We had a unique way that you and I came together. Very. Um, people might think this, uh, think this show overcome has now turned completely into like recovery yeah, or yeah. addiction because that. my show and then the shows that Amy and I did before, but I guess our recovery journey brought us together. It did. I remember I was listening and heard you sharing some of your story with some of the guys mm. and you shared that y'all had a new song coming out with Papa Roach and that it was with the UFC. Yeah. Is it stand up? Stand up. Is stand the name. up is the name. Yes. And so that's awesome, man. Yeah. I, so UFC picked it up, you know, it's in all the promo, promo videos. If you see a fight coming up, you'll hear it spinning. I think it's still spinning. This was a few months ago. Um, but what an honor, man, to, especially cause we're all huge UFC fans. I mean, yeah. we watch every Saturday night we're going in on it. And so for them to contact us and say, can we pick up stand up? It was like elated. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. How does that work? How does, uh, they just hear the song or does someone pitch them the song or how in this case we have a connect there. Um, my brother Tobin has a, has a, it's a friend of his that works there. Um, I think he's in the, the head of rock division and of with ESPN. Oh, with ESPN. Okay. With ESPN. And so, you know, they keep in touch. And I think it's probably, I'm not even sure how the song got into his hands, but maybe through managers and, or the label threw it their way. And, and he said, this is amazing. It's got the right energy. It's the right message. Stand up, like yeah. get up when you're knocked down was yeah. kind of the perfect premise, you know? And so it, it fell in his hands and they, and they're, they're using it. So I'm stoked. Yeah. Who wrote that song? I was myself, um, the band, and then a very talented friend and producer of ours named Jason Evigan. Okay. Um, Jason is insanely talented. He, he's been friends with the band from way back and he wrote that song with us. He was a big part of it. Wow. And, that's uh, awesome, man. Honored but to be you, working with him. Yeah. And then you do, you're a, I don't know, jack of all trades. What do you say mm -hmm. about that mm -hmm. with mu musicians? Like you can just play it all. Um, yeah. Well, dude, okay. I'm, I'm very fortunate. There has been a, uh, a home studio in every house I have lived in since I was a, a baby. My dad is a musician. My mom is a musician. Multiple of my aunts and uncles are musicians. 
And so my dad will build in our garage a full-on recording studio with sound treatment, the best gear, everything. And so I grew up with that in front of my face. And you know, the funny thing is, is like, I probably could have picked up instruments earlier in life, but like, there's this story, I think I told it at the ranch where my mom, she got me a kid's toy acoustic guitar when I was three and she gave it to me. And I was like, okay. And I go out to the back deck and I piss in the acoustic guitar hole. (laughs) I don't remember the story. I pissed in the acoustic guitar hole, brought it back to my mom with the shit sloshing around. And I said, here. And she was like, okay, he obviously is not interested in music. (laughs) And thinking back to that story, I'm like, that's pretty punk rock. Yeah, it's pretty punk rock. Pretty. A- Amy, do you have a, a thing on that? I mean, Amy's a musician. I have no story like that. No story. I, I'm, fortunately, do you have any comments on this? Um, well, I'm glad to see things turned around. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> I, I, I just thought maybe at the time I was more into Stretch Armstrong or whatever, but I, I, I think now, like, what if I was, would have started playing at three, dude? Yeah. I probably would have been a virtuoso, but. Yeah, but when did you, when did you officially, you consider it, not that you just started to play, but you took it serious. Oh, dude, it was, it was like a movie moment. So I'll start with my first instrument was drums. Yeah. I just, and, and just to set it up for Papa Roach right now, you mm-hmm. are, you play percussion, guitar, yes. and keyboard. Percussion, guitar, uh, guitar, keyboard, and some backing vocals on stage. Right. So essentially what they did is <clears throat> I've been writing with them for the last 10 years and I was writing extra guitar parts, harmonies, background vocals, whatever. So eventually they just said, Hey, come join the band and play those things live so that we don't have to rely on backing tracks. Mm. A lot of bands and acts use backing tracks, which it's fine. No knock. Right. But Papa Roach, you know, they base their, their shit off being organic mm. and raw live. And so they said, you come play all that. So that's wow. why I have four things going on on stage. Yeah. You know? Wow. That's a lot though. Um, and then yeah. for me, I mean, one of the first real concerts, I mean, I've been to a couple of concerts. We have a friend uh, named Satsung. I'll introduce you to Drew McManus. Tell me about Satsung. Yeah, yeah. Dude, it's, he's a badass. Yeah. And his music has inspired me so deeply. And I've been to his concerts and a few others, but I didn't grow up doing that. I wasn't, I, I couldn't remember names of songs, names of musicians. Mm-hmm. Although I always used music whenever I was like training or wrestling, like to get me pumped up. But Amy took me to ACL. ACL. Mm-hmm. And that was incredible. He'd never been to anything like that. Never. Oh, I mean, your mind was blown. Oh, dude. <laughs> yeah, he was like, so what blown. is this? What is this who culture? Was, <laughs> who was uh, Madhu? Was, was that her name? Uh, the the woman that had the wom- wonderful Erica dresses. Badu? Erica Badu. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> Erica uh, Badu. Yeah, that one. Yeah, she was Who's incredible. that guy, Prince? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but it was, it blew me away. Yeah. Yeah. Her, her voice, her act, her music, the the stage, the lights, like I was just mesmerized. I love that about you, man. You're a lover of, of things. You're a lover yeah. of new experiences. I can just see you for yeah. the first time with that big smile, like this chick rips. Yeah. She was incredible. It was very um, fun to take him to ACL for the first time. Good on you. Yeah. yeah. Good was, on you. I was, was like, awesome. we're going at least for a day yeah. just so you can experience yeah. it. Yeah. And nice. we did. And it was incredible. And then I'm getting to another point, but then the, uh, the one band that was almost like Led Zeppelin, like a modern uh, Led Zeppelin. Uh, oh, those kids. They're yeah, young. Kids. Why They're can't real young. Greta Van Fleet. Greta Very good. Deb, Deb O'Keefe. Thank you, Deb. Young guys. When they came out, they were like 17 or 18, I think. Wow. Yeah. When they started. Their style was so dope, too. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. what they're wearing. It felt like a blast from the past. Every every uh, screen was black and white. Um, so they weren't playing in color and it almost took you back in time. Yeah. And it was one of the most epic 
like live experiences I've ever had. And I love live fights. Like I think on sports, I love, I enjoy basketball. Football's all right. I'd rather be on the field. Uh, baseball, I can fall asleep in the stands. And I mean, I, I, I appreciate all athletics, um, but I've been to the World Series, the NBA Finals, uh, the big fights, the Super Bowl. Um, and I, I, I loved that experience. But man, that was like one of those moments. Yeah being at the Super Bowl with these guys up on stage yeah. because everybody, I think it was attracting everyone that didn't even know who they were. I didn't know who they were. People were like, who are these guys? It just, yeah. just, they ripped. It was awesome. The beautiful thing about concerts, man, is you're all one. Yes. You are all one. Yes. It, it, you're not thinking about taxes. You're not thinking about your worries. You're like, yeah. you're like mosh pitting and like, making love with other humans to music. Yeah. And no one's, you know, no one's in a bad mood. That's what yeah. I love about concerts and music. Wow. In general. I love that. Um, I had another point and we'll get back to we're all one because uh, we talked about that at the ranch. And when yeah. we say ranch, we're talking about, we won't use the name of the the facility just, yeah. uh, but we were at a treatment center together. That's where we came together mm -hmm. for substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, my drugs of choice, a lot of times are Oxycontin weed, um, and then basically any other mind altering thing mm -hmm. on the planet earth. Um, and your drug of choice or no choice, alcohol, alcohol. Okay. Devil's juice, man. <laughs> and we'll, we'll get into that story. The thing I want to point out about ACL though, you said that you're playing the backtracks and you guys are just organic. There was a couple of musicians we went to that I was actually a little bummed about. I want to say their names. But, um, remember, like you remember their names. That's uh, true. Yeah. I, I don't know their name, but there, there was a, a rapper and I, I have seen some live rap that's incredible, but this one guy just went up there and it was, he was just lip syncing his own songs and he was playing other people's songs. Do you remember this? And like people yeah. were walking away. Well, it takes and away I didn't some mean of the it. energy. I mean, sometimes even just having a live drummer up there makes such a difference, yeah. you know, yes. just, it was yeah. just him on stage, nobody else, no one playing any music. He just had a microphone. It was him. And he was saying some of the words and not saying other of the words. Yeah. And it was like, is this guy even performing or is he calling it in? Like, does he even want to be here? That's or, hard to try and perform solo with no band backing you up or because that's yeah. energy right there. Right. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. Amy just said, if you have a drummer and you see him wailing, yeah. like you're going to feel it or a bass player up there doing his thing. So yeah. Props to that guy for trying, but if he's yeah. not even singing the words. No, he wasn't. He was literally putting the mic down at times and he wasn't like even encouraging people to sing the words for him. He was just bad like, he had, he, he had a bad day. Yeah. And I didn't mean it that like to call hey, that dude. No, out. no, no. I don't even remember his name. There we go. But uh, <laughs> it was like, it was just so different. Like you could go from one thing, one stage to another, to another, and you could feel this person just giving it their all and everyone coming together. And then another guy that was kind of not, and you, you have days off. And I know that with fighters and stuff or guys that come to the fight and they're only collecting a paycheck. Mm. They're not there to win the fight. Mm -hmm. They're there just to get paid. And so they'll take a fall or they're just, you know, they're not performing real well because they're just there for a paycheck. It's not the end of their career type thing. Um, guys that were at maybe in the later stage of their life was Duran Duran and they freaking rocked they it. They killed it. They killed it. Yep. I can so see that. I can't wait to come to my first Papa Roach concert. Well, Me too. on, on yeah. that note, that is one of the things I respect about Papa Roach so much, dude, is like they're known for being a hard rocking live band. They're known for their live show. Our singer is a madman in, in the best way possible, dude. Like he's constantly jumping down into the crowd. If we ever play like uh, uh, stadiums, 
yeah. or arenas. Yeah. He's in the seats with the people in the wow. spotlights following. He's stressing him. that security out. Oh, they're following yeah. him. He's like, he's like, I got this, you know? Yeah. Um, and so when I was asked to join, dude, you bet I was nervous. I'm like, mm. I gotta bring it and to this band that's just I gotta measure up to I this. I have to measure up to yeah. these beasts. So I remember that part being a little daunting because my focus is is those four instruments that I was talking about, right? I'm not I can't really rock out as hard as they can. So I'm kind of a little more focused and I've I've found my place now where I sit mm. in the band. But you go watch us live, dude. Those guys go off and it's it's a pretty cool sight to see. Yeah. You know. Well. Well, I want to get to your story. Mm. Because I mean, you've played in front of 190,000 people or something like that, 180 something like it was I mean, wild there. in Germany. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's next level. I fought in front of, I don't know, 30, 40,000 people mm. and millions on, on TV. But I mean, that's epic. That one was a game changer see, for me. Yeah. Yeah. A sea of people. Yeah. Didn't you say it was as far as you could see? So yeah, the, the thing I always say, cause people ask me about that. It was called summer breeze fest in Germany. I don't, I don't remember which city. Um, but it's just, it's so many people that at a certain point, you're just seeing a horizon kind of like if it's the ocean, you can't see beyond the horizon. Yeah. So I'm looking at a lot of people, maybe 50,000, 60,000, whatever I can see. Mm. And I feel this intense energy more than any other concert. It was, it was insane, man. And then someone did a drone footage, right? So I think it was, it might've been that night or the next day I saw the drone footage of the sea of people moving together. Like I was saying as one. Wow. And, and the cool thing about Europe, man, is like most of them, their phones are down in, in the States. You see a lot of people holding up their phone and, yeah. you know, all good. I know that people want to, you're not necessarily present. You're not they're present. Like, they're like remembering it or I don't know what you're doing. I, I saw this meme of this like older woman that like there were someone, someone famous was walking by and she, you know, had her hands like down and was like so excited just seeing that person that was walking by, but all the kids just had their phones out. It was like, they're not being present. They're not even going to hundred percent, you know, just be there now. hundred percent, man. Like do what you want to do all good. But if your phone's up and you're, and you're taking video, you're not moving, you're not really engaging. Mm. Right. And Germany, I didn't see a phone up and the drone footage, everyone was, was mosh pitting. It was like the coolest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. And I got to be on stage for it. Yeah. So that, that lit me up. That show was a game changer for me. And those moments I'm so grateful for. What is it like before that moment, knowing it's going to be a big show? But then coming out and it's bigger than what you can expect. And then afterwards, what is that like? Like going backstage with the crew that you were playing with, the band? Before is, you know, now that I've been doing it for me, I've been doing it with them for four years, is like there's some butterflies. There's always a little bit of butterflies, but it's more like it's game time. It's time to go to work. I'm focused. Like my first show with them was in 2017. And all my friends asked me, like, were you sweating bullets? Were you nervous? I was like, Actually, not really, because like I said, I have to measure up to this band. Mm. So I was like, it's game time. I'm going to work. And so I just, I'm thinking about my parts and my executions. And so before the show, a little bit of butterflies, but I'm ready to go on stage. Can't really explain it to you. Yeah, Can't really explain it because we, we rehearse so much and practice so much. It's autopilot, right? So for me, when I'm playing the percussion, I got to put the drumsticks back in the thing, bring my guitar back around to sing. Right. Wow. And then I put the guitar behind me to start doing the keyboards. And it's all this, like I have these moves, so yeah. I'm not really thinking and I can observe and watch the, the people. Wow. And it's, I just can't explain the energy I'm feeling and that we're feeling mm. on stage. That's a master of his craft. That's, that's muscle memory and being prepared. Yeah. Being prepared. What's that saying? If you, uh, prepare, 
you, if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail right. or something like that. Right. Yeah. And so you're, you're prepped. I get it. Cause whenever I'm going into a fight and I know I've done everything that I was supposed to do in preparation for it, it's like, it's not even me versus him. It's just like, I just got to show up. I like that. Um, I just got to show up. And You're in this cage with me. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember me saying <laughs> I remember that you? you saying that. Yeah. That's, that's my feeling whenever, because people always ask you once, especially at the amateur ranks and then with the beginning of pros are like, what was it like when you heard the cage door lock? And it's like, man, for me, I had a smile. That's, that's, <laughs> that's like a, a little feeling. grin. Yeah. I was like, this guy's not, I'm not locked in here with this guy. This guy's locked in here with Justin's me. Justin's going to work. Yeah. This is work. This is time. This is what I put in all the work. Honestly, I don't know about for you. I like practice, but I don't love practice. I do it because I love to perform. Mm -hmm. And so there's some guys in fighting, at least that their lifestyle is they, they just love the lifestyle of the training and the, the routine of it and everything else, which, which is great. Um, but if I could just fight, uh, I would just fight. Got you. Um, and I'm sure you love it all, right? Well, but, I was just going to say the big difference is, is like I'm playing a guitar to practice and you're getting smacked in the shin. <laughs> right. And you're getting punched in the jaw. Yeah. So no wonder you maybe don't love practice. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's other guys that they they love to train, but whenever it's time to fight, they kind of, they get super nervous or they get, they, they start to crumble or they might throw up beforehand or, and some of those guys that get super nervous, it propels them forward mm -hmm. to perform better. Yeah. Oftentimes not, but some do. I could see that. And I could see that right when it's game time, you yeah. snap or you just mm -hmm. let something get get in your head. Yeah. And you've already prepared this whole time. And then mm -hmm. this la right at the last second, you just get yep. thrown off. Yeah. There's some guys that I knew a guy that would just own everybody, even world champions in the UFC in the training room, but he can never get off the regional circuit because anytime he took that step up, uh, he was almost paralyzed with that fear or that uh, insecurity or that doubt, self-doubt. But anyways, I... Off that subject, I think that your story is super powerful, man. Um, I literally have in front of me the notes that I took while you were writing your story, and I just wanted to get something from it. And then all of a sudden I was writing, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be on the show if if you'd like to share it. Yeah. And so at three, you peed in a guitar. Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> Punk rock. Right. And then what what was the journey like? I know at school, school was kind of hard. Um, yeah. there was some bullying and things that happened. Yep. Bullying was a big, I mean, it, it was a big part of my life, um, for a couple of the years. And, uh, I just think that I was the, well, first of all, we moved a lot. We moved schools a lot. So I didn't get to settle into one, you mm. know, with my teacher and my friends, I had to move and new guy gets picked on. Right. But I was always just, I was nice. I was easy to pick on, um, bullying, uh, you know, at, like, six, seven, eight was more like, you know, in the sandbox, they throw sand in your face or they'll like give you a, a, a knuckle sandwich or whatever you want to call it. Um, but it was traumatizing at that age. Cause I was trying to make friends. I was like, I want to make friends. And there was a good group of guys that, that didn't like me, but, um, yeah, that was in California. And then the, the family decided to move to Oregon mm -hmm. and my mom is from a small coastal town in Oregon. It's called North Bend. Uh, Coos Bay is a more well-known city right next to it. So Coos Bay, Oregon. Um, and the family moved up there and it's a predominantly white, uh, city. I, I don't, I probably don't look at right now, but I was very Brown as a kid. I'm, I'm Mexican, yeah. part Mexican. And I just remember that was the first thing people picked on me for was my skin color and would say some harsh oof, words to me. And that escalated into, you know, punching me in the gut in between classes and just things that basically like I could have went to 
the principal and I could have went to my parents, but I had too much pride. You know, I had this, like, if I go tell I'm, I'm the bitch, you know, I'm, I'm the tattletale. So I just took the punishment and that went into, to high school. And I, I didn't even tell my friends, not even like my best guy friends. Yeah. I was embarrassed. I was like, I'll handle it. And it, it did more damage than anything by, you know, keeping it in and imploding later in life, mm. you know, for sure. I can relate. I get, I grew up getting very heavily bullied and I, I also can relate to, I didn't tell my mom until it was like, okay, now I'm clinically diagnosed with depression and suicidal. Like I Crazy. was, I was holding it in cause, and I was the only child. So I think I didn't want to let my mom or my dad down that like people don't like me or they pick on me or uh, what can I do about this? Like I would never ask for help, you know? That's an important thing to note f from both of our stories is that we both hid things mm. from my parents. And I know a lot of kids out there suppress that because they don't want to what burden their parents, yeah. you know? And it's like for anyone watching and listening, just know that that communicating is the way out of that. Ooh. No one's going to look down on you or go, what? Yeah. You know, if you're suffering, I mean, your parents love you, your friends love you. And so I, I, if I could go back in time and tell myself at that age, you know, Hey man, go, go hit up one of your friends or talk to a teacher. I would, I would go back and do that. Yeah. It's so important, man. That is so important. Like it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength, strength. when you ask for help. And one of the things Amy and I've been talking about a lot lately is man, for me, this journey at treatment was really the way to get, you said, we grew up hiding stuff from our parents, even being bullied, right? Yep. Um, was getting honest. And I got more honest with myself uh, than I ever have. And one of the things Amy and I even talked about um, earlier was that it feels good to be honest and honest with myself and honest with her. And so it's it's just, uh, did you find that at treatment, that that that, that was something you had to work on was getting honest? 100%. Yeah. 100%. I, I mean, it's, it's a crazy thought to think that I haven't been hundred percent honest with myself mm. that my whole life, dude, you know, I was in denial about my alcoholism and I, I think I was relying on, um, denial to keep drinking. I knew something was going on. I knew I was drinking much heavier and much longer than I ever have, but I went, I made a justification for it. Mm. My justifications were like, well, I still get up and go to the gym. I'm still paying all my bills. I'm yeah. still calling my mom every Friday, to, you know, and that's a justification for drinking a bottle a day. So wow. I was not honest with myself I until treatment, honestly, dude. Yeah. Um, and being in there with you guys the first day, I'll tell the first day story. First of all, yeah. um, have you heard the, the, the term, the lost boys that I've given you guys? Uh -oh. I dubbed you guys the lost boys the day I got oh, in there. Okay. Cause there was 21 of you. Yeah. Right. I had just come from detox in a van with a couple others. No one's in sight. It was a ghost town. Y'all were, I don't know where you guys were, but no one was in the house, right? So this lady says, hey, put your stuff in this room. That'll be your bunk bed. And I'm scared. I'm like, yeah. no one's here. Okay. And I hear like a stampede of elephants, just <laughs> footsteps. And like the Lost Boys came in and you, I come out and y'all have mops, brooms. Some guy had a, a floor sander, like, <laughs> and I'm like, it's for what? the bathroom. It was for the bathroom yeah. and y'all were going crazy on chores. I since learned it was chore time. Yeah. You all, you also were about to go to lunch and y'all were ravenously hungry for some reason on this day. So you were shouting and yelling at each other to mop faster. And I'm sitting there going, I'm, I'm Anthony just, <laughs> just, just got here. And I was like, these guys are the lost boys. They're running around. There's no parents around. And 
So I was intimidated, man. I was like, I got to learn all these guys' names. I've never been to treatment before. I'm just admitting to myself that I'm an alcoholic. Mm. It was a lot of emotions, but you were the first person that just kind of took me under your wing. I just remember mm. you approached me and said, Hey man, you know, welcome and anything you need, you know, I'll, I can help you figure things out. And I said, thank you, man. And, and sure enough, I think the first class after lunch was called process group. Mm. And I asked you, what's process group? And you said, well, we all sit in a circle and get vulnerable and talk about our darkest secrets. And then the guys give you feedback. <laughs> and I said, no, <laughs> I said, no, I will not be doing that. I know I'm here for three weeks, but I will not be doing that. Yeah. And yet you were so kind. You kind of walked me into it, said, you don't have to talk if you don't want to. But that, that group is where I learned to be honest. Mm. I, I, you guys were being honest. So how could I not? You know, I had a guard up, but when I saw you guys speak on your issues and I felt it, I saw electricity in the room and I'm like, dude, you got to just let them have all your dark shit too. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So I learned it in those moments in that process. Group. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's really encouraging. Um, I remember when I walked in there and it was my second time to go. Right. But I still felt like a, a little bit of deer, a deer in the headlights because, oh no, I'm back here again. And the first time was traumatic and this time was like very hope filled. So once I saw that the staff and the guys were being honest and were leaning in and that the staff was there to truly help because they had so much purpose in helping and that, that people had helped them. So they're just passing this along. Right. Um, it's an opportunity to give back. And the guys were like leaning in. I was like, ah, this is my place. This is my jam. I could tell that for you. I mean, you told me of your experience of the last one. Mm -hmm. And I, I've heard from multiple, you know, of the guys on, on their experiences at other recovery centers. And it was nothing like what we went to. Yeah, That's where I feel blessed, man, that I landed there. Yeah. Because there's so many different treatment centers. And I landed at this one <laughs> where you're right. The staff cared so much about us, man. Like, yeah, I, I could feel that. Um and some of them were addicts and alcoholics themselves. Right. They, they only another addict or alcoholic can truly help you. Yeah, that's you, you true. Know, you can't just talk to your buddy from grade school about it. Like you got to have someone that has been in, in the darkness that you've been in. Yeah. And I felt that there. Yeah. It's because they've, they've been in the trenches and they found a way out and they can just relate, you know, like a, a doctor it, it says that in the big book and stuff like that. Like even a doctor that it's, this is their trade, their vocation, right. Can't help like another person that has the same story 100%. That, that can truly relate, not just, uh, not just have uh, sympathy, but empathy, like, Oh, I get it. I understand. And Hey, this helped me. This helped me. This, this doctor did help me. And this therapist did help me. And this treatment did help me. And this meeting did help me. But like, I know what you're going through 100%. and I'm just a little bit further along than you are. It changes everything. When you have a brother or sister in recovery, that you can lean on daily. Yeah. I mean, people in recovery are amazing, dude. Uh, everyone that I have on my phone from the ranch picks up when I call at any hour. Cause I've yeah. been calling my boys Yeah, and they call me and you've called me recently to do right. a 10 step, you know, yeah. things. And that's what I love about it. It's like, you're, that's that person that knows when their phone rings and it's you like, okay, I gotta be there for my homie. Yep. Um, and not to take anything away from doctors. Cause you're right. Sure. Doctors, they can study these things and they can help with medications and whatever, but they don't know what it's like to be in the trenches. Yeah. It's, it's game changer yeah. to have that. I think it's good to remember that like part of that, the people that don't know the steps, like, um, there's a 12th step and it says we carry this message, you know, and, um, we're basically giving that strength. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm slaughtering the actual step, but it's, you know, carry the message to other alcoholics and giving them hope, strength, um, and experience. 
And they say when nothing else helps, you know, like you tried the therapy or you tried this step or that step. And when nothing else helps, go help another addict and alcoholic. I think that's some of these people that are further along than you and me, that when we call and they pick up or when we go in these rooms and we're able to meet these people and they're like truly genuinely there to help. I think it's because they know that as they give that gift to us, it's literally taking out a little bit of insurance um, yeah, on yeah. their own recovery. Right. And, and they're giving a gift to that person because they just want to give back what was given to them. So it's really cool. And I think we need it all right. Like the therapy and other stuff, but man, it's been really cool to see how your story, which we're about to get back to has, has impacted me in such a way that I think is going to impact others. So, so there was a kid, I remember I had a guy named Ken that would show me some dark stuff. Oh yeah. And so rewinding back to your story and your youth, you, we, all of a sudden I'm like, I love this guy. No, not, not this part, not this guy, but, um, but I was like, I can relate to you in such a different way now, just because you shared one little moment in your life. Yeah. That, that you had moment. A ben? Was it Ben? It was Ben. Ben. Uh, yeah. He's just, he's a kid that, um, I started hanging with, I think we were probably 12, 12 or something. And, you know, it's funny, like back then I felt like parents didn't really, you know, they didn't check in much. Like I was like, I have this friend named Ben. I'm going to go to his house all the time. And my parents were like, okay, like nowadays I would want to know the parents and be calling. And I think they probably met him once or, or twice, but they didn't know that the household was pretty messed up. The parents were going through turmoil and Ben was acting out, right? He's the first one that, um, had me drink a beer, um, which ended up at 12, uh, at 12 years old. Yeah. Uh, which resulted in me getting what's called a minor in possession. Yeah. Cops found us drinking beer. I had to go to court and do the whole thing. Right. So he wasn't a good influence, but he was like my buddy. Yeah. And so what you're referring to is he told me one day I came over and he says, let's go down to the study. It's my dad's study. You know, that's where his computer is. I said, okay. He goes, I want to show you some videos. And so he goes on the internet on some, I can't remember the website name. I guess I won't even say it if I knew it, but first video that pops up is a beheading video. Mm. Um, it's, it's the most graphic beheading video of a guy and they're doing it. They're using a blade, a rusty blade. Right. And Oof. I couldn't move. Like there was no emotion from me. I just stared at it. I was mostly intrigued, but like sick to my stomach and was yeah. paralyzed when he was done with that video. He went on to some bestiality type stuff with animals and humans and, um, and some more torture videos. And he probably showed me four or five. I didn't say a word. He was laughing, mm. like sinister laughing. And obviously he was taking it a different way, thinking it's funny. It scarred me to this day. Yeah. When I think about it, I get a knot in my stomach and it, it, how it messed with me through life is I went into the dark web and looked at even worse videos when I was like 18, 19 and 20, because it popped in my brain. Like, well, now I'm intrigued about this dark stuff and it lives in your psyche, man. I don't care what anyone says. You don't yeah. forget it. You can't unsee it. Um, and it, I, I just don't show people those videos. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, out there. I mean, for me, it, I related because, you know, and what's so crazy is you came in and shared that Papa Roach did a UFC video and I'm like, Oh, Hey, I'm a fighter. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, then, um, you shared that, but what I didn't tell you was the song Last Resort. You guys have incredible songs and Last Resort has turned into something really good for me and I get pumped up and everything else. But for a little while, it was a little bit scarring to me because not nothing on the, from the song, nothing from you guys. But I had a friend, Ken or Kenny, 
That was unique. Yours was Ben. Mine was Ken. Right. And people called him both Ken, Kenneth, Kenny. And um, he used to play the song Last Resort and he would cut himself. Um, and I know the song's about hope, right? And and overcoming that and and uh, struggle and challenges and depression and all that. So um, he got the wrong message from it. And he also was in a sick place, kind of like Ben, where his home life, if my parents knew the home that this was, like there wasn't even a phone inside of it. And uh, so if something went bad when his parents were using right. or whenever they were off partying and using, we're there alone. Um, but he would blow up like frogs and he would like burn cats and he would Jeez. like, like, like some sadistic stuff. Right. But he was being bullied at school. I was being bullied at school. And like somehow we we were like the rejects. We were the ones that sat at the table by ourselves at lunch. And um, but Kenny would sit me down one time, and he had these floppy disks. I don't know if you remember floppy oh, disks, but absolutely, yeah, yeah. So he didn't have to search the web because, uh, especially at that time, it was like where it would do 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 do, and it would. Or I can't do the sound <laughs> of it, but uh, I'm not musically inclined. <laughs> was that good? So it was good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. How would you do it? Like the dial up. Uh, you mean for like for internet? Internet, yeah. Dude, wasn't the dial like? Yeah, that, yeah, that you did it better. <laughs> Not bad. Yeah, <laughs> mine, mine was pretty <laughs> do, do, bad. Do, do. Yeah, there you go. I wish it was. So, bad. but mine would the screen would like take forever. So, anyways, he had this stuff downloaded off of uh, like a picture would take like five minutes to download um, for porn for middle school kids. Like, we were patient uh, back then. Yeah, for those movies <laughs> for sure. Oh God, y'all don't even know patience in the eighties. Oh, it was like press the button between HBO and something else for just a glimpse of, you know, something. It was an art the, science the, project. The rabbit ears. It was a science project. And it would just okay, be. Okay, I'm not that old, but okay. plus. <laughs> but, uh, anyways, he had these floppy disks and he would put it in. And man, it was some of the darkest stuff. It was people that were doing such self-harm. They were cutting off parts of their fingers, like part by part. They were willingly doing this to Cutting themselves, themselves off. One guy was on hard drugs and he cut his own tongue off. Another guy cut, uh, it was for money and I guess he was handicapped or something. And he had set up like a, uh, a guillotine for his own legs. And Are you kidding no, me? No. Yeah. And this kid was same thing as Ben laughing and I'm like paralyzed in fear. And then it was bestiality and beheadings and like the same story. You? I was like 12. Yeah. 12, 13 years Man, old. That's just, that's a. That's messy. And I mean, he went into like some real dark stuff on there and um, like almost ISIS stuff before ISIS. And um, I remember that being so scarring to me. And like for I just thought it was really unique that you and I both have that story. Even that was kind of Kenny's theme song. And then it became one of my playlists on my my like workout songs. That's badass. Um, and so I was able to like almost like. I don't know, rewrite the story, what that song meant to me before I even met you. Yeah. And then like you're sharing and you get to pop a roach and, and all this stuff. And then, but you had this same thing in your childhood. It's another way that like an alcoholic to an alcoholic, if you don't share this shit, you can't relate to people. 100%. And like, I really related to you in that. Like, oh man, I was getting bullied at that time. I don't know if Ben was getting bullied at all. I'm, ass but, I'm, I'm assuming so. We, you know, I, I don't really know. Again, the household was, there was something off. So yep. Perhaps. I'm pretty but, sure, I'm pretty sure Kenny's parents were, were shooting up. Um, I saw him smoking weed. I saw him drinking, but the way that they were laid out. Sure. I think they were shooting up. Yeah. I mean, thank God. I, once the MIP happened, when I got caught with the police, my mom, she went to work, pulled me away from him. Yeah. I wasn't allowed to see him. 
he wasn't a good influence, you know? And, and, and that's about the time when I started really establishing my core group of guy friends about 13. And to this day, we're, we're insanely close. It's the same, it's about 10, 11 of us dudes that, that do trips and they're, they're such awesome humans, you know, and I found them and, you know, got out of that darkness and drinking early and all that stuff. Cause I, I dabbled with alcohol at 12 and 13, but I didn't touch it again until 17, 18, like, you know, senior year. Yeah. So I, I, I kept it at bay. What happened in some of those years? Okay. So I actually started my first band at 14. Um, Were you going on tour and stuff in high school? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What was that band called? What was that band called? Words Fall Short. Words Fall Short. That's actually pretty dope. Mm -hmm. Words Fall Short. So the kind of actually Amy and I were talking earlier about Tobin. Um, My my brother's 13 when he started working with Papa Roach. Wow. Um, And when he started joining the band and stuff. And I was 14 playing guitar and all the kids in town heard there was this young guitar player, all the seniors and and juniors. And so this guy, Jeff, uh, Jeff Williams, he's a bass player. He would hunt me down in the halls and be like, dude, I heard you play guitar and you're, and you're ripping, man. Like come join our band. And I just was scared. Like older guy, I didn't want to be in a band. I just played guitar. (laughs) I want to be left alone in my room, you know? Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, I don't know. I'd kind of like make up an excuse and bail. One time I was walking home from school and he whipped around in his car, cut me off with his car. He goes, just come over and jam, dude. I was like, oh yeah, maybe on Sunday. And I'd run off. <laughs> I was just a shy, like nervous dude. Yeah. And I think he did that enough times, cornered me. I said, fine, I'll come to it. I'll come to a rehearsal. So I go, it's in the drummer's a parent's garage. They turned it into a studio. Um, and I, you know, kind of knew the, the dudes. They were around high school, but didn't, you know, hang out a lot. The oldest was actually out of high school. He was 20. So I was 14. And I jammed with them and it went good. The other guitarist showed me something on the guitar. It's called a hammer-on and a pull-off. It's basically like bouncing up and down on the on the string. And he showed me how to do that. And I got it down within that practice. And I thought that was really cool that he showed me new tricks. So I thought, I'm going to be in this band just to learn off of this guy. I wasn't planning on like being in a band. I don't know why I was so against it at the time, but ended up falling in love with, with those dudes and the music we were making. And my mom let us go. She let me go on a tour when I was 16. I think I was 16, 15 or 16. And we did, you know, I was in uh, Oregon at the time. So we did Oregon, Washington, California, Idaho, Arizona. Wow. But it was a full on, you know, pulling our own gear, setting up our own gear, playing the show, tearing it down, wow. driving the 10 hours to the next city. And it was my first taste of this is this is band life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that was an experience. And then you didn't drink, though, in those couple of years, or at least not much. No, it I was more heavy yeah. drinking and in, in junior, senior year. Yeah. So the band didn't drink. That's okay. The, That's the cool. oldest one. I mean, I was in the band for three years. What, so th- what was that? The three X's? What are those guys called? Oh yeah. I forget. I don't, that don't drink. Yeah. Thought, is it X's or the slashes? I mean, it's the slashes. I forget, but it's some, some sobriety term and like kind of like band. A straight life. edge. I know Russell straight Brand edge. has a there tattoo. We go. Like straight that. edger. Straight. I actually, yes. I would consider the oldest one a straight edger. He was a okay. key, you know. Didn't drink, didn't do drugs. So that was a good influence for me. But, you know, when parties start coming around at senior year, it's, you know, especially in Oregon and this town I was in, there's, here's how it is, man. There's a movie theater, there's a bowling alley, and then there's sand dunes. Okay. Okay. Everyone there is like redneck. They have lifted trucks, they're hunters, they go on their ATVs, the four wheelers. So when you partied, you would take, we would literally go behind stores and steal their um, pallets, the wooden pallets throw them in a truck, take them to the beach and we'd do a bonfire and we'd drink around the bonfire. Mm. So we were partying in the woods 
we would go into the woods. We'd go up logging roads, like abandoned logging roads and start fires. And like, it was nice. a pretty redneck party. Yeah. But we would get 30 racks of, of beer and just, I remember going real hard. Yeah. 17, 18 into uh graduation and it just kind of followed me. Yeah. Till the last, what? 40 something days yeah, I'm on now. Absolutely. You're you're 40 something days sober? I think I'm 47. Nice. Yeah. I think I'm 54. Right on. Look at us. Uh, look at that. I got a little sober before. Not a little sober. I got sober before. <laughs> a little, don't <laughs> don't put a buffer on it. Sober. I got a little sober before I went. A tad. No, I, I actually moved my sobriety date back. I got sober before November 11th, but I like 11-11. So I just said 11-11. I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to put the sobriety date up on a a pedestal and just do it day by day. Good. Um, but yeah, I think uh, if it's November 11th, it's like some like 54 days or something. Yeah, bro. But man, so how did you start? Well, I mean, what was, what was home life like? Was there anything that, that went on, say mom and dad, they're musicians are, mm-hmm. are like for me, let's see how I'd say this. My dad who couldn't do athletics um, because he got injured. My mom was a badass athlete. She was a, state champion in tennis multiple times. She was a national champion in barrel racing. So like the horses where they like run between three barrels and like do it in like 15 seconds or 17 seconds. She was a national champion of that twice. And my dad being a professional sports photographer for the Mavericks and Cowboys and Texas Rangers, like in DFW and the Green Bay Packers and Denver Broncos, like he, I felt like I didn't have a choice, but I had to be a pro athlete and he lived vicariously through me. There'd number be, one fan, number one supporter. Uh, I think number one critic, but oh, yeah, maybe, so he was maybe, hard. maybe number one fan too, in his <laughs> his own way. Uh, but he would sometimes get thrown out of games uh, for yelling at refs, or yelling at coaches, or yelling at players and uh, or parents, I guess. And um, and that was really hard for me because I quit most of the sports he knew about. I mm. quit baseball. I ended up quitting football. I chose wrestling because he didn't know a dang thing about it. I would get off the football field. Really? I can have a great game. I can have a great game, but I was offsides once. What would I hear about on the drive home when we won? Wasn't good tackle, good block. It was at least what I heard, right? Was, was you were offsides. Why were you offsides? You got to get better. I talked to your coach after the game. I'm calling him and I'm just like, ah, just Damn, pops. Like, yeah. So I chose wrestling because, and I would, I lost every match by Every match, I won one one match by one point in my first like over a year of wrestling. So it's pretty bad. And my dad, when I get off the mat, he would say, "You shoulda," and I go, "I shoulda what?" Because he didn't know what I shoulda done. And I'm like, "Exactly. Let me learn how to do this and do it on my own." And so that's kind of like it was on my own journey, my at least my own sport. I wanted and to be an athlete. Killed it in that sport. I, I, yeah, yeah. That was because that was <laughs> how cool is that? You picked it to like get your dad out of there a little bit and you murdered it in that sport. Yeah, which is is it's kind of cool and I love the sport and I love the chess match of it and I love that I chose it. But I wonder like for you was it ever a choice because your parents were both uh musicians and then like what was the dy- family life dynamic and did any of that contribute maybe to a reason why you were at at treatment? Yeah, I mean <clears throat> my parents have always been in bands together. So growing up like back to the guitar pin and the guitar story they were always in the living room set, set up playing with their cover bands. They were in cover bands with my aunts and uncles. So I always saw it. I love, I knew that I loved music. I had an interest in music, but no, they never forced it on me. My dad never, you know, put a guitar in my hands or put a drum in my hands. Um, I actually wanted to be up until about eight. I wanted to be a cartoonist. 
Oh, I was obsessed okay. with Garfield. Yeah. And so nice. I was drawing Garfield cartoons daily hours, dude, after school, six what hours. What was the appeal about Garfield? I don't really know about him. I don't, I can't tell you. Okay. I can't tell you like big orange cat. Like I was looking at Calvin and Hobbes. I was looking at peanuts gang Garfield, just the way that Jim Davis, the creator draws him, it's big features. He has big eyes and he has big stripes. And I just was drawn to the way he had his characters. And so I would start by tracing. I'd put a paper over and I'd trace and then I learned how to do it myself. And I would start setting up scenes like the actual blocks and tell stories with cartooning. And it's like, that's what's cool. My parents, just whatever outlet I wanted to do, they just let me do it. That's cool. And it wasn't until eight. I just, I think I was with my dad one day in the studio watching him. I was like, I want a drum set. He's like, you want a drum set? I was like, okay. Or he goes, okay. And he goes, you should ask Santa for it. You know, because it was like October, right? And so I was like, okay. So I wrote a note to Santa. We go to my grandma's house in Oregon for Christmas. Everyone's there. Like my mom's one of eight, right? So I got aunts and uncles, cousins running around and boom, there's a drum kit from Santa, dude. Like I, it was a three piece too. It was a kick drum. It was a snare. And then uh, the hi-hat came out of the kick drum. So it wasn't (laughs) even a full kit, but there was a moment that happened there that changed my life. Like I got the kit in the living room with the people, but I said, can I go play it in in grandma's room? So they put me in grandma's room. Everyone was out opening other presents and I'm playing this kit. And obviously I'm terrible, right? I'm eight years old and I'm just like, (laughs) and one by one, each family member came in and poked their head in and said, great job, dude. Wow. Anthony, you're doing so good, buddy. Like keep going. And I'd be like, thanks. And I'd keep playing. And then my aunt would come in, Anthony, I'm proud of you. They like, they changed my life because they could have been like, keep it down. It's Christmas. Yeah. Everyone came in and gave me praise. And I remember sitting with the drumsticks and I literally said out loud, I'm like, I'm going to be a rock star. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm going to play music. It just, it, that, that was it. I haven't stopped since that moment. No matter what job I've had in my life, not, you know, I've been in coffee shops and I've been a paint salesman door to door. Like it doesn't stop. I go home and play my music. And it was that moment. I think where it, it started. Wow. You know? This podcast is brought to you by Onnit. Onnit.com slash overcome. Wow. I uh, I feel great right now because I just took Alpha Brain, not just took, it was a couple hours ago, but Alpha Brain Black Label. What is Black Label? I'm holding it right here if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're not, it's the dopest packaging. It's Alpha Brain Black Label Supercharged Formula promotes mental processing speed and laser focus and extreme productivity. Stay in the zone. When you open this thing up, oh, it's, it's so I cool. mean, I would venture to say it's sexy. It's sexy. It's, it's nice job black on it. Cardboard on the outside, but it's an incredible like so, think what's in it. In can the I just say, can yeah. I just say I took it for the first time today? And how do you feel? I feel really good. Ooh. I feel really good. So yeah. I was gonna say, like, dudes, get it for your lady. Order yeah, it because absolutely. I'm feeling really good. And I was d- wanting to take it when you were at treatment, but uh, you took, took it, it with, with you me. I'm sorry, and I didn't have it. And so now yeah. it's back. And so what's really cool is it's this uh, metal bottle. And I mean, that's not necessarily cool. It's, it's pretty dope. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I like that I can switch it up because I really like the focus shots, which are drinks. And I really like uh, the packets, which like the are packets. more drinks. But yeah. these are capsules. And if mm-hmm. you just are on the go. Um, they have alpha brain, just capsules, capsules as well, but this is pretty nice. There isn't an alpha brain black label that's in a drink, but in the, um, capsules and, and, and one me, like capsule it. is contained in total human. 
as well yeah. in the morning packet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you got a black label, you would only have to take like a couple of those. Well, they say don't combine them, but I did. Yeah. I not only took my total human this morning, but then I took black label and then I drank a packet. So I only oh. took two black label when I took well, it. You that was plenty. On top of Dude, it. I'm so yeah. alpha brained right now. Yeah. I'm going to well, be Let's just make sure you don't take too much, but promotes wisdom. razor sharp focus, aids extreme productivity and supports what? Eye health. And I actually love that um, because I, I have my vision has been going a little bit on my right eye. And uh, my God. Yeah. Anyways, I don't that's have to wear cool. Well, you know what? Keep taking this and see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really grateful for all of our listeners. I'm also incredibly grateful for Onnit for being our first podcast sponsor and also donating to Fight for the Forgotten, being one of our donors, planning on doing that. I'm so grateful for this partnership with them because it means so much to me. So a great way you can support Overcome with Justin Wren and me and Fight for the Forgotten is to support Onnit. Please go to onnit.com slash overcome and do yourself a favor as well as a favor to this podcast and the nonprofit. Why don't you buy yourself some supplements at onnit.com slash overcome. Thanks so much. That's uh, powerful. That's profound. Amy, you have anything on that? You're a musician. And then uh, I just think that's really profound and amazing. You know, yeah. we should all be so lucky to have just this, to just feel that very great. So many people spend their lives not ever knowing. 100%. You know? mm -hmm. And where do you think that happened from? Do you think it was your dad or your mom that maybe, or do you think it was just a family dynamic that everyone felt like they needed to come, not needed, but wanted to come tell you, good job, keep I, going. It's the family dynamic. It's how my family is. Wow. Very supportive. Um, yeah. I, I think they just saw my passion, my eyes light up for something. And, you know, when you see a kid do that, mm -hmm. you get behind them. And I just think it's cool that I know that I was annoying the heck out of the house. <laughs> you know, that's a loud thing to be doing. And no one said, be quiet. They just came in and said, great job. And that moment happened. I remember that moment like it was yesterday. Um, and so like Amy just said, I feel fortunate that, you know, it, you know, at high school, when you're about to uh, get your letters of recommendation for colleges and you're starting to scout, I remember that happening. And, and there's, in the high school I was in, there was these teams that they assigned to you to help you write the letters and get into college. And I remember walking into my team. I'm like, I'm going to play music. And they're like, well, you really should have this back. You should go to college and play mm. music. And I was like, I'm going to go play music. And when I brought that to my mom, she said, okay. And I don't think she would have said, okay, if I hadn't have proven to her when I went on those tours when I was 15. And when I sat in my bedroom every day after school and played guitar until my fingers bled, if mm. she hadn't seen all that, she probably would have been like, I think you should go to college. Wow. She yeah. trusted me. Yeah. That's so cool. You're reminding me of a documentary I watched recently on Netflix called The Alpinist. I'll just say that and tell people that there's this guy in Canada that basically started breaking records, climbing like free solo. It's the same people that made the documentary free solo of like guys climb without ropes and doing it alone. And this guy in Canada just did it because he loved it. And his mom took him out of school basically because he wasn't supposed to be in school. He was supposed to be in the wild. And she basically told him at 16, go, wow. go climb mountains like all over the world. And it was incredible. The love of his mother. Um, that's really incredible, man. I, I, I love that story. Yeah. Wow. I was very, very lucky. And I was, again, I was in that small town and, and, uh, I had a girlfriend at the time that moved to Portland, Oregon. And I was like, that's the next move. You know, yeah. I need to get up to Portland. And so 
My mom encouraged me to go up there. I remember being very nervous for that, but she said, give it six months. Yeah. Leaving the nest, you know, is a big deal. Mm -hmm. And she's like, just give it six months. Yeah. And when I moved up to Portland, dude, it was game over. Like yeah. experiencing life on my own as a young man and the people I was meeting mm -hmm. and the, 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 the trips and journeys I was going on. I never looked back. I was like, I love this adult stuff. dude. Yeah. I, you remind me. Uh, so I was a, like a 10 time state champion in Texas wrestling and five no time American two. Anyways, I won some national championships and stuff. And, uh, and every college wanted me to come there. Right. And I, I felt almost betrayed by my dad because, because my coaches went to Oklahoma state university um, and they were both Olympic gold medalists. And they said, this is kind of the journey to that. But I wasn't a freestyle wrestler, which is like leg attacks and like staying really low to the ground. I was a Greco guy. So even though they were my coaches, I was a thrower. I didn't like to grab people's legs. I like to throw them through the air. And uh, I like to make them land on their head because that kind of <laughs> ends the match. Um, but my dad just started really saying, and, and I, I love my dad, but he uh, was saying, you need to go to this university. You need to take this full scholarship. You need to do this. But my mom, seeing the love in my eyes for Greco and one of my coaches, um, you know, I had an Olympic gold medalist come down and basically say, sign, sign for the full scholarship with like two other Olympic gold medals. There's three Olympic gold medalists in the room saying, sign this. It's a full ride scholarship. And my dad there saying, this is what I, this is what I've been telling you. You got to do it. And I remember, um, I remember just feeling in my gut, like I'm going to the Olympic training center out of high school. That's what, that's my path. That's what I'm going to do. And I told my mom that, and I told those other coaches that, and they go, but if you don't win the national championship, and I was going to be the, like the first Texan to win the Greco Roman national championship. Really? Yeah. And they're like, if you don't win it, you won't be able to go. Like, so they'll fill the spot for this full scholarship and you'll miss the, you'll miss the mark. Like you'll, right. you'll have to, like the tournaments after when you need to sign and they have to fill the spot and they're trying to win NCAA championships and stuff like that. And there was other universities that kind of did the same. And I just remember I had to stay firm. I had to stay firm and say, this is my journey. You knew this is my path. And my mom was like, he's going to win it. And I was like, but what if he doesn't? And, uh, my mom was like, he's going to do it. What's and the I'd story like, where you practiced? Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but I just remember you telling me a story of you practicing this specific move over ah, and over and over yeah. and you won a mat, a big yeah. match, right? Yeah. Well, it was visualization. So my coaches that said, go home and write down state champion, put it somewhere you can see it. And every day, whether you're brushing your teeth or above your bed. Um, so they said basically the mirror in the bathroom or above the bed. And they said, write down state champion. By the time you're a senior, we'll make you a state champion. So there's three styles of wrestling. That's why I won uh, 10 styles uh, of or state championships because um, I won three of the styles uh, three times and another one four times. Wait, wait, I won. I won three. Wait, anyways, I don't know, but I won them a bunch. <laughs> one, four times, two, one, four three. times, two, three times. Um, there we go. The math. That's the math. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. I get hit in the head for a living, so I don't do math. Um, and I forget some stuff. But basically, I went home and I was I like you. I just uh, I was like ambitious and wanted to be resilient. And so I went home and wrote down national champion. And instead of putting it in one place, I put it in my bathroom and above my bed. Love it. And then I told it that they came back and we reported and they said, what did, and they kind of told a bunch of guys to do it. Right. Some guys did it. Some guys didn't. And then they asked me and I go, I wrote national champion. I put it in two spots and like, so I can wake up and you know, start my dude. day to brush my teeth thinking about it. I could go to sleep dreaming about it. 
And they said, okay. So since I took interest in them, a coach wants to be coaching, right? And if you show that you're coachable, they'll take more interest in you. That's what I've come to learn. Like even our recovery specialists, once they saw we mm-hmm. wanted it, they leaned in. If you didn't really want recovery, they would try, 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 but they would give like, they want to coach the guys that want to listen. So I wrote down, uh, or they said, clip out two pictures of moves that you want to learn because we're not going to teach you 10 or 20 moves. I had a fast track because I started wrestling late in life. Mm. So they're like, we want you to learn one or two moves, do that move 10,000 times. So that way it doesn't matter if everyone knows this is his one move or these are his two moves. You're going to get it anyways um, because you're a master at it. Instead of teaching you 10 moves, a hundred times. Master a couple. Right. Yeah. And Bruce Lee had something like that. If you're the man uh, that doesn't train 10,000 kicks or a hundred kicks uh, 10 times, if you're the guy that trained one kick 10,000 times. Right. And uh, so I clipped out a lateral drop and a belly to back suplex. And above my bed, I put the two wrestling moves. I put a lateral drop on the left. And I put a belly to back suplex where you throw a guy on his head on the right. So my first national championship, I won with the move on the left. And the second national championship I won running against a guy that was like undefeated and hadn't had a point scored on for like years. Um, I won with the move on the right. Now in my last fight, um, I told Jim Stewart, my executive director, I told my mom uh, that in this fight, I'm going to come out, I'm going to faint some throws or some punches. And then I'm going to hit a lateral drop. When he stands up, I'm going to hit a belly to back suplex. And once he's down, I'm going to hit an arm, <laughs> arm triangle. And so basically it's the move on the left and the right with, oh. a, with a finishing move. And so that's literally how I won my last fight. That's was, so cool, I went out man. there and I did the exact thing. So there's power in visualization. I love how you were so determined with those two and just made it happen. Yeah. Because it's instinct at that point, right? Mm-hmm. You've, you practice so much yeah. like you're like, I'm going to get this. Yeah. Guys don't want me to have my hands locked. If I have my hands locked around you, um, that's my world. Good night. And so, yeah, good night. Night night. Um, you're going down. So uh, <laughs> uh, like uh, that's where I get my takedowns, like pretty yeah. much 100% of the time. And uh, That's awesome, bro. So yeah, thanks. I want you to come to my fight. I'll come to your concert. Okay. We'll yeah. do that. Can I get tickets to your fight, dude? Yeah, absolutely. Right. We'll, we'll figure it out. Cool. Uh, well, they give me a, they're, they're a little stingy with uh, fight tickets, but yeah, we have Amy, we have my mom and we'll, we'll, work, we'll, it we'll work it out. You heard we'll it here on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I'm going. You're right. You're going. I'd love to. I'll see if I can get a whole section together. Cool. Dude. That'd be awesome. Well, all right. So, but there was, so I went through a divorce or my parents having a divorce and I went through a divorce, but I went through a divorce late in life, which is a little weird being 30 years old and that happening. Did you share that that happened with you? Yeah. Well, yeah. My, my parents divorced when I was 18. 18. That's right. And I just, it was a, it was such a blow because I didn't see it. No one saw it coming. You know, I, I, I really haven't talked to them too in depth about it, but I, I would assume that they weren't doing great for maybe a couple of years, but decided to kind of hold off until I graduated to really tell the family. Yeah, that makes sense. And I don't knock them for that. That's, they were doing what they think is best, but when it did come out, it was like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. I'm, I just graduated and you, you guys are splitting. Like I, in my head, it was like, I just heard friends, parents had divorced when they were four or five. And so I just thought, you know, okay, this is, this is a big blow, but I stayed positive. And, um, it just kind of turned looking back on it. It turned in, I think I was a little too involved is what I was telling you guys back at the ranch. I wouldn't change anything, but I basically became my dad's best friend. Um, my mom ended up moving out of the house and I didn't see her a lot, but my dad was, you know, a divorce is crushing. Yeah. And so I became my dad's best friend and he would come to me a lot and talk to me about the divorce and 
I would hold him and I just remember going, man, I got to man up, you know, like this is, I love my dad. I'm going to be here for my father. And, um, he talked to me a lot about it. He had me look into a few things sometimes on my mom and, um, keep some tabs and stuff like that. And I would do it because I love him and I wanted him to feel better. But looking back on it, I think I was a little too involved and I eventually imploded, mm. you know, one night, I think I just, I broke down and went to a family friend's house because I had been do I'd been taking care of the families what I was doing. Yeah. My little brother was 13. I was looking after him. My sister was out of the house, but you know, keeping in touch. I just felt like I was the, the glue. I had to be in town because at that point I wanted to graduate and go right to Los Angeles. That was my plan was go and do music, go meet up with Tobin, my yeah. brother and the divorce. I said, I need to hang back, you know? And, and, uh, it, yeah, it, it was a big growing up moment, uh, the divorce and, you know, it's just part of life and they're, they're both doing amazing now. And, yeah. You know. That's awesome. Nothing, nothing to knock them at all. Cause divorce happens. Uh, yeah. I've been divorced once. Amy's been divorced twice and it's, it can be part of life and you can come out of it stronger and everything else. I just, uh, I feel like sometimes people in addiction can sometimes have excuses to use, um, or play the victim. Right. And so I've been thinking about some of that and was my mom and dad's divorce a reason that I used more because like I kind of had it under control before mm -hmm. that and I had four or five years sober, but then their divorce, my divorce, and then COVID and all sorts of stuff, everything just kind of blew up at once. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but really what you queued up in that story was, uh, you wanted to go meet up with Tobin. How did you find out about your brother and his talents. Yeah. <clears throat> it's an interesting story. So Tobin, Tobin's my half brother. We have the same father, different mothers. And so growing up, I knew I had a half brother. I just didn't see him often. Like there's home videos of us from when I was like three hanging out, but I don't remember that. And the only times I really remember him is going to his concerts once the band blew up. Right. So at yeah. 14, I remember going to Portland to a concert I think it's 17 or 18. I went to a concert, but like, I don't really have memories of him and we weren't in contact because he was off doing the band thing. You know, it's like he was busy and all over the world. And so I just remember having this longing to know him and to meet him, but I don't know. It just, my dad and him didn't keep in contact. And so we just never saw him. But I remember being 10 years old. My dad picked me up from school, fifth grade. And he goes, you know, your brother's band. I'm like, yeah, Papa Roach. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And he goes, okay, well, they just got signed and, and their songs doing really well. And I remember him putting in the CD and it was last resort. Hmm. And, and I know I might be biased cause it's my brother, but I was like, what is this? What is this amazing sound? What is that guitar riff? Something was changing in me. Like hard rock was creeping into my veins then. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and I went, this is so sick. And then he played the next song on the album, which is where did the, or sorry, where, that's my song I wrote for them. <laughs> Look at me plugging, um, angel, between angels and insects hit hard dude. And the lyrics are all about you coming from a messed up childhood mm -hmm. and real raw lyrics and stuff. So something changed that day too in the car. And then I see him on Jay Leno, uh, that weekend, I think he, my dad goes, come on in, uh, your brother's on Jay Leno. And I'm like looking at the screen at my brother, who looks just like me. And I'm like, what <laughs> next weekend he's on David Letterman. Next weekend, he's on TRL. If you remember Total Request Live, yeah. Uh, uh, who was that? Carson Carson Daly. Carson Daly, yeah. Which he was the biggest thing ever. Yeah, then. yeah, for um, sure. And I just was like so enamored by that, and it made me want to know him more. And just 
just again, like life happens and we, I didn't get to see him too much. But when I decided to stay in Oregon for the divorce, stuck around for a year, family seemed cool. So I moved to Portland, but I made a phone call to him and he answered. And I said, I want to come live with you and I want to do music. And he, he's like, okay, like you want to come into LA? I said, yeah. And he goes, all right, I want you to bust your ass in Portland first. Mm-hmm. He's like, I want you to show me that, that you want to be a musician. And I was like, okay, like what? I'm like asking him what to do. He's like, do open mic nights, play gigs, start, show me, you know, what you got. And I really respect him for that, that he didn't just say, come live with me. I'm going to give you a job or something. He wanted to see if I had it, you know? And so I was in Portland for three years and I did just that. I think my first gig was a coffee shop, which I had a residency at. Um, I played weddings. I played uh, bars and I did some singer songwriter contests and I won one of them actually. So I was kind of showing him like, look what I'm doing, bro. Like, check it out. And he was always like, great job, man. And um, so I busted my ass and I think I was 21. He said, all right, come down, like come live with me. And I was so excited to move to LA, but also I was getting to meet, like to know my brother. Right. I didn't know him, dude. It's like see him at, you know, a Christmas here and there and a concert backstage is not enough time. Yeah. How many, how many years apart are you guys? We're 10 years apart. Okay. Yep. So, you know, when I'm 10, he's 20. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I moved in with him and his wife and, um, and her son, Jaden, and I lived with them for probably three years. And just, dude, the bond is like, he's more like my lost twin <laughs> than, than a brother, like, or than a half brother. I mean, we have the same interests. We have the same laugh. We have the same everything. And we're, we're so insanely close right now. And that bond was beautiful, dude. And, and his wife is amazing, Amber. Um, and, and they took me in and kind of showed me L.A., I couldn't sleep the first month of living in Los Angeles. <laughs> I could not sleep because I was like, I'm in LA. This is where music happens. Yeah. Hollywood boulevards right down the road. I mean, I was just in love with the culture and, and to be honest, the weather. Yeah. Coming from Portland. Oregon. Yeah, dude, for sure. It's raining, dark hail. Yep. And so to have sun every day and music, I was just elated. And that's eventually what led me to working for the band. Was, was living with him. Yeah. And how'd that go working for the band? I mean, cause you kind of had to prove, um, <clears throat> that you've got it. Uh, you're not just his little brother, but like you can write songs and you can play music and that you're, that you put in the effort and the work. Yeah. And see when it started out there, I wasn't being brought in as a writer. So they weren't even looking mm-hmm. for that. It was an opportunity that I saw, um, to where I could probably work up to the, to the place I am now. But Basically, what happened is I moved in with them. I was applying for jobs at coffee shops. That's all I really knew how to do was coffee and nothing was sticking. I was starting to run out of money. And even though he wasn't charging me rent or anything, still LA is like $17 for a, a water orange juice. <laughs> and I was like, I'm running out of money. And he goes, you know what, dude, I just got the call. We're going to be writing a record, a brand new record in Sacramento. And we're going to be living in Sacramento at a studio that the band owned. Right. And it was the coolest thing. It was this live in studio. So state of the art, there's a huge live room. Um, there's the tracking room. And then there was a bunk room where you could sleep in a full kitchen. And so he goes, would you want to be the assistant? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't even care what that entails. Like, I don't care what you pay me. Like, let me get in on it. And so we drove up to Sacramento. Um, I, I remember cleaning the joint. It hadn't been no one had lived in it or worked in it for like two years. So in the cracks of the floor, there was weeds growing up about two feet high. It was like a jungle wow. in the studio. Yeah. So I was pulling weeds, cleaning it. That was my first task. 
And then the first day of, of work, there's like, they're like, you're going to be the guy, you know, getting the groceries, cooking the meals, doing our laundry. You're going to wrap cables. If we need you to make a run to a guitar center to grab something, you get that. And I said, cool. So I was doing that, that job every day and loving it, dude. I was on a high, I was with a massive rock band yeah. watching them track a record. And I just decided like, I'm going to start throwing them demos. Yeah. I'm going to start throwing them demos. Like I felt weird about it, but like, I'm going to do this. So I kept showing them these demos. I was writing, like, check out this riff, check out this chord progression. And they were like, cool, we're working. You know, <laughs> it's cool. It's really good. Good job, dude, but we're working. And I'm like, okay, well check this riff, check this riff. And so this one riff comes across the table and they hear it and they're like, damn, okay, this is, this has got some bounce. And the producer at the time, James, he said, let's track it. Let's just track it. And my heart's beating. Dude. What does that mean for someone that doesn't know track it? So track it means lay it down. Like, you know, a demo is just a demo until you, you put it onto tape or put it onto the, the workstation. And so basically what that means is let's record it um, and, and see how it sounds through the speakers and let's right. put, a, let's put a vocal on it. Let's have the drummer come in and put a beat to it. That means track it. Wow. And so that was a big step because that means, okay, it's, it's being put on the list maybe of making the record. Wow. And so for me, never having written a song ever, um, I was stoked and it ended up making the record. Right. Um, I just remember one day the, the producer brought us all in. We went through the, I think they wrote 30 songs, 30 demos for that record. And you picked the best 11 and he goes, this one, we got to keep, man. You just can't deny a riff like this. And I was in the back going, wow, like my riff is going to be on a Papa Roach record, you know, cause I look up to them as a, I'm a fan of the yeah. band, dude. That's the thing is like, I've been a fan of the band, even though my brother's in it. Um, I love what they do. Um, and so then more good news about a month later, they're on a conference call and the manager says, I think we're going to make the song is called, where did the angels go? We're going to make that the first single. And I went mm. the first single. So it's going to be on the radio. It's going to be pushed, you know, and they're going to make a music video for it. I just didn't believe it was even happening. And they put the song out and it went to number one on the active rock charts. Wow. And it stayed there for two or three weeks, I think. Wow. And was so that your second song? First. Oh, first. first. That was your first one. Okay. First yeah. song. Yeah. Wow. Um, first song that I'd written like commercially. Yeah. Um, and, and it, it went to number one. Yeah. Wow. And I just, you know, it just, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. That is. It inspired me. And, and so what it, what it did is I think the band was like, okay, cool. He can write. Yeah. You know, and, and they didn't say come in as a writer, but they just noted, okay, Anthony can write. Cause I continued as their assistant for years after that and kept doing the demo thing on the next record, which I ended up making four songs on the, on the following record. And then they brought me in as a writer for the third. They finally said, all right, come in as a, as an, another writer on these. And yeah. so it, it was beautiful. I'm still getting to do that with them. And, how many songs would you say you've written now for them for Leah? Yeah, oh, for them. uh, probably, probably like 35. Wow. At this point, 34, 34, 35 songs. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a veteran move. My and man. I'll clarify, uh, co-write. There's a big, okay. Difference. Yeah, sure. Co-writing there's, you know, the band writes them as well, but yeah. I'm, I'm just involved in some of the riffs and right. progressions and all that stuff. But that's it's, awesome, it's a badass team, man. I'm, I'm very fortunate. Yeah. So that's great. So where, where in this story, cause you start touring. I mean, there was one year you're on the road, 200 days. Yeah. I counted. I counted one year. It was, uh, I think it was 2015 or 16. We went to Russia in the, in the dead of winter. Nice. We went to Russia first. Um, I've been there a couple of times to wrestle and uh, coach fighting and it's, it's a different world. It's a trip, yeah. especially these it was very stoic. 
Very stoked people. Yeah. I love I love them though, dude. Yeah, I did too. Like, oh my gosh, I have some funny stories of, of the Russian fans because they are so stoic. You're like they'll bring you treats and and you'll you'll be like, thank you so much. Oh, like I really appreciate this. And they'd be like, You eat? No. I'm <laughs> they like, want to watch right it. now? Uh no, I'll take it to my room and I'll eat it. They're like, why? Like confused yeah. at why I'm not eating their pastry or whatever. <laughs> I'm like, no, I, I really enjoy this. Thank you. Or they'll just open their jacket and they've got bottles of vodka yeah. right there. Here yeah. you go. Take a sip. And yeah. dude, they would wait. Uh, I remember seeing, we pulled up in the van, it was blizzard snowing out and they were in their t-shirts. Wow. That's the weather. Oh, Cause they want to show you that they got your yeah, shirt the on. The merch was on and they were in line waiting to get into the venue in the snow, in the blizzard. Just all good. I'm just like, chilling. Damn. Yeah. So Russia this year in particular was Russia. And then we hit Europe and then we did a six week U.S. run. Came home for two days and did another six week run. Wow. Normally it goes, you go out for six weeks on a tour come home for three to four weeks, basically a month off to recoup. Right. And then you go out. I just remember an offer came in where the, the, you know, the team said, Hey, you can do the States and then you can hit another market in the States two days after you get home. Do you want to do it? And I remember that being really tough because it's, you know, you're, it's airports, planes, trains, and yeah. automobiles being away from loved ones. So we did back-to-back -to -back tours. I think we went to Europe again in the winter and then some other tour at, the, you know, before Christmas. So all in all, it was like 197 days or something. Wow. Um, and it was just a lot of work. A lot of work. And in this time, did you see your alcoholism go up? Because I know that one of your, at least previous, like rituals before you go out there, almost like a pre-fight ritual or routine, mm -hmm. like warm up, right? What do you guys do to warm up before you head out? So we all do different things. Our, our singer, Jacoby, he likes to isolate. He has an hour warm up that he does, and it's hilarious because he has his AirPods in, and what he's listening to is a uh, vocal coach going like e e e e oh like that stuff. So, I hear I hear Amy doing that at least once a week at. at I still at take home. voice lessons. And and Tipsy, our, our dog sings with her whenever she's oh, doing the awesome. vocal warm ups. So yeah, so you know similar. Yeah. You know how it goes. Oh yeah. So he's doing that, which is funny because you just yeah. hear him. You don't hear the, the vocal coach, but he'll usually go into another room. Uh, my brother stretches. It's my brother gets ready. Like it's a fight. Mm. He's like in pigeon stretch and <laughs> downward dog. And, um, our guitar player, Jerry is, he does, uh, he'll get the guitar and he'll do these runs on the guitar, um, to warm up his fingers. Tony, our drummer has a pad. It's a practice pad. So it's not loud. Mm. So he's kind of doing, <laughs> and we're always jamming music, right? We'll put on some kind of, I mean, I don't know. It, it changes every night. It's usually hip hop or something. And so I'm like, I warm up on guitar and stretch, but absolutely drink. I'm drinking. Yeah. Um, our, our drummer does not drink before the show. He's superstitious about that. He does not want to fuck up one thing. And that's, I love that about him. Um, our guitar player, Jerry has never drank. Wow. He's in his forties. He's never drank. Wow. Through all of Papa Roach's, Papa Roach's success. Nothing. Wow. He's a, he's just an awesome guy. Doesn't want to fuck with it. Our singers, 10 years sober, 11 years sober. Wow. And, and has been through recovery. Jacoby? Jacoby. Wow. Yeah. Dude, I, I, I'll be honest and just say that, uh, you know, the fighting world, win or lose, you have an excuse to use. And hearing you say that, like, it's just part of it, you know, rock and roll. And, mm -hmm. um, and it's the lifestyle of like touring and stuff. But to hear that your guys, one's never drank, one's in recovery, one doesn't drink before shows. Yep. Like, you'll be supported there. 
100%. I think, I think anytime it's a long time band, mm-hmm. like yeah. that's what you see. If we were 21, I don't know if it'd be the case. <laughs> no, but when somebody's been, when a band has this much staying power for that long, yeah. you're going to, there usually sobriety's involved. Do well, yeah. Well, you're getting older. I mean, yeah. for Jacoby, I can't understand how his voice stays intact on tour. He is screaming. He is singing at the top of his range. And even when we're not playing a song and he's talking to the crowd, he's screaming. And his voice doesn't go out, dude. So I'm like, if he were drinking and using and stuff, it probably would go out all the time. So yeah. he he's like honey, lemon, ginger, water guy. He takes care of himself. Yeah. You know? So you cut, you're right. You kind of have, have to. to. Um, but my brother and I will have some shots. And I never... I never go overboard, but I have gone overboard. Ooh, can we share that story in Canada? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I have gone overboard one time. One time. One time. Let's one... hear about that one. When was that? Okay. This was probably uh, 2019, okay. I would say. And so we had we had a merch guy from Canada that he was our merch dude through Europe. I think actually he was our merch guy for about a year and a half through, through all territories. He's such a great dude. He became one of my good friends, but he ended up leaving us. And live just living back in Canada. So we went through Winnipeg and he's like, dude, you're in my city. So do you want to go get some beers before the show? And normally, like, I have my shots before the show. If we play it, which are what? Two shots before you go on? Probably three. Two, three. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, three shots. I'll do one on the bus, two in the room. But uh, if we play at nine, I'm starting at 745 on that, right? So he hits me up at two in the afternoon. He's like, Do you want to go out? And I was like, sure. A beer, you know, it can't hurt. So we go to like a Buffalo Wild Wings or something and I get an IPA, which was my first mistake because those are like 9%. <clears throat> and I had one and he said, do you want to get another round? I'm like, all right, let's do another. Ended up having four. Um, went back to the bus, laid down on my bunk, ended up kind of taking a nap, which I never do. So I already kind of noticed, oh, I'm walking on thin ice here. So my genius idea was, well, whiskey has sugar in it. Uh, I mean, and whiskey is what you drink before show. Maybe you just need that to kind of wake up. Not an energy drink. I thought whiskey. So I took my shots on the bus more than I normally do because I was nervous. I think I needed to wake up and get in my zone. Went in the dressing room, took a few more because I just kept getting nervous. I just thought I never drink this early, right? So we go on stage. The set's fine because I'm not drunk yet. It's not hasn't kicked in yet. But I think midway through, we have a song called Falling Apart. And falling apart. And you're falling <laughs> apart. That's appropriate. Isn't that funny? I didn't even think about that. Really? <laughs> Dude. Yeah. It was a moment. So I'm standing, right? And I can feel myself kind of doing the, the wobble thing where I didn't know where my center of gravity was. And I went, just stay, keep your feet planted. Let's play. So how that song starts, our guitar player, Jerry, and I start on just guitar. There's no drums, bass, or anything going on. So all you're hearing through the main speakers is our guitars. I'm playing the wrong note. The whole time. Oh. Okay. So it's this just like stat staccato, like dun, dun, dun. And I'm like, dur, 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 dur. <laughs> and our singer is singing and looking back at me with this look like, I'm going to fucking kill you. He thought I was doing it on purpose or something because I don't mess up. Yeah. Like I take it seriously. Yeah. I was drunk, dude. Didn't even hear it in my in ear monitors. And I'm hitting the wrong note. And so my genius idea was, well, it can't be my fault. My guitar tech must have handed me the wrong guitar. <laughs> mm. So Mid song, I run off stage somehow, go up to him and I'm yelling, is this the right guitar? He's like, what? I'm like, is this the right guitar? It doesn't sound right. He's like, yeah, this is the same guitar you use every night. And I'm like, I don't believe it. And I go back up on, and I think I like acted like I was playing the rest of that song because I was so insecure good call, at good that call. point. The good call though. Turn off the guitar. <laughs> 
so insecure that I, cause now I know something's wrong and it's me and I'm flushed and I'm just like, so I turned off the guitar and stopped playing that song, got my shit together somehow. I actually motioned to my, to the assistant to go get me another whiskey. I kept, this is what's crazy about addicts. Yeah. Help, 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 help the listeners understand like about addicts, alcoholics, what goes on in your mind at this point? At that point, I mean, now we know what's going on in our brains with, you know, the science behind the brain, but we'll right. get into that later. But you're, you're being told that more is better. More is the reward. You, the reward system in your brain is telling you this is the right thing to do. Not stop drinking, not drink water, but let's keep using that drug because it's, you're living in that dopamine high. And when it starts yep. fizzling out, you need to get back to the dopamine high. And so <clears throat> I asked, I remember motioning to our guy, Will, I said, get me with this much in a cup. And I drank that on stage, dude. Wow. And, and here, the fucked up thing is that actually for people that worked. are just listening, that's like what? Four or five Four shots, about, five yeah, shots, five, six. It's a lot. Um, on top of what I'd already drank in a cup. It's, it's at least five or six. Cause that's what my brain's saying. If you keep drinking this and here's the crazy thing, it kind of worked because I, I then got so drunk. I wasn't insecure anymore. And I let my shit go on autopilot and I finished the set. I probably played bad, but I got through it with no more like messed up. Notes. Your bad playing is probably still pretty good. Well, I think hope, I hope <laughs> so. I hope so. I don't want to see that YouTube concert, but because afterwards, afterwards, I, okay. Usually we go off stage, we all go back in the dressing room and we talk about the set and how the set went. I was terrified of facing them. I dropped my shit off in the dressing room. I went straight to the tour bus. I put in a quesadilla into the microwave for my after show food. And instead of hitting 30 seconds, I somehow hit eight minutes. Oh, okay. All the alcohol hit me at this point and I jump in my bunk on the top. I'm on the top bunk of the bus. So I had to crawl my bunk face planted like this and pass out with my arms behind me. I wake up to screams on the bus. Black smoke is billowing through the whole bus because eight minutes with a quesadilla burns the damn thing. Yeah. And my brother is, it's my brother. And he goes, what the fuck is going on, dude? And he's like that note on stage and you like, you're passed out. Like what's up? And I'm like, I don't even know. I can't talk to you about it right now. I was so embarrassed and so drunk. And all I cared about was like, is the bus okay? And he's like, yeah, the bus is fine. But it stained the bus. It was smelled like black smoke for days. And I, I don't know, man, I was so ashamed of myself. I get it. I was so ashamed of myself. And, mm -hmm. and we talked about it the next day, but the crazy thing is no one asked me like, do you have a drinking problem? Like no one ever said like, do you need to pull back? They just kind of were like, Hey man, you know, let's do better tomorrow. And I think in a way I wanted someone to kind of check me. Cause I had some, some outbursts like that in my life where I was kind of crying out. Mm. I don't know if that was one, but I've noticed that through my history. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, thanks for sharing. Um, because that's, <laughs> yeah. that's, uh, I mean, that's hard to share like just with another person, but it's going to help somebody. I mean, I really yeah. think that's going to help somebody that listens to this, that hears this, uh, because you know, I think what they told us back at what we call the ranch is, um, you know, you got to examine the evidence just like a lawyer would. And you got to like check the facts, right? Examine the evidence, check the facts. And the fact of the matter is like, um, that was the start that you could see like, okay, this, this isn't manageable. Absolutely. That's a great point. Yeah. You know, cause one of the things we did at the ranch or what you guys, the group of guys helped me do was look at the timeline of my life and my drinking, um, and where it started to pick up. And for me to, um, jeopardize my job, and the show, because we take that really seriously, man. I'm representing Papa Roach. Right. So if I'm hitting wrong notes and stumbling on stage, it's, it's just, you can't do that. 
for me to jeopardize my job was a big moment for me because I'd never done it up until that point. And so I do think that's the start of where I went, ah, screw it. You know, I'm going to go out before and drink. And um, if, luckily that, that moment did happen and it scared me into never letting that happen again. Right. I wasn't going out and getting beers with people after that moment, you know? Yeah. So I've kept it pretty chill. Well, so let's progress to Austin. Um, at least if, if you want to go there where you moved here uh, back in April of 2021 mm-hmm. uh, and you're dating Blaze. Yeah. And you're coming here to get close to Tobin and Amber mm-hmm. and Arrow. Mm-hmm. And you moved down close to Rainy Street. Is that right? Or kind well, of downtown? Uh, East East 7th. East 7th. Okay. Yeah. Not far from, from Congress. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, which is a area where it's, it's nice. Uh, it's, yeah, but it's coming you can, up. It's coming up. And, uh, but bars aren't far away. I no. think. And. No. Yeah. It, it, so that. Here's and COVID hit. So COVID. Yeah, well, COVID, you know, back real quick backtracking to March of 2020. This is kind of a crazy story. So um, my drinking had gotten pretty bad. So that story I told about Pop Rush was early 2019 when I came, went on stage and played the wrong note. I, from that moment, my drinking was getting worse and worse and worse. I was like, when I'd come home off tour, me and my roommate were killing half of a fifth of whiskey each um, per every day. And so I remember drinking really heavily. One night we were about to go on Pop Roach is one of their biggest headlining tours in Europe. And this, this tour was going to happen in February, March of 2020. This is probably late January at this point. And I partied all night, dude. I woke up with the most massive headache and I'm laying in bed and I see all these texts from the band and management, which doesn't happen. And I open the first text from my brother. All it says is Jerry broke his fingers. You're up. Ooh. Jerry is our lead guitar player. And I'm hung over and I'm like, Jerry broke his fingers. I'm up like what? And I'm, then I look at, you know, our manager, I look at our singer and they're like, Hey man, you gotta, you need to step in and fill Jerry's shoes for the, the tour. And I'm hung over and I'm like, I, I, I just didn't know what to think. And I called my brother. He goes, yeah, man, what happened is he was trying to grab his dog, his dog's collar. And these two fingers got caught in the dog's collar and he has a big dog yeah. and it turned, it snapped both bones in his finger. Oh, and this is, this is the guitar hand. Wow. So the not money makers. the money makers, man. And so yeah. like, I was like, okay, so what's entailed in this Tobin? You know, what do I got to learn? He's like, well, you know, we have 30 songs that we play live. You need to learn Jerry's parts. And so that was daunting because I had to unlearn my parts that mm. I'm playing different parts than him and I'm playing percussion and keys. And I have to now learn his parts, the lead parts. And we had two weeks till tour. And so it was just a bad time because my alcoholism was getting really bad. And now I needed to step up for the band. So I took it seriously. I, I practiced. I practiced three times a day. I treated it like school. Right. I was like, at noon you're running through all thirty of those songs. At four p.m. you're running through all thirty songs, and at night you're doing all thirty songs. Yeah. So I got him down. I felt pretty confident. Went to Europe. First couple shows go good. I'm not used to being in the front of the stage. I'm usually behind. So there were some things I had to work out, but it was going fine. But I was noticing that my anxiety was so high from being in Jerry's position because he's such a damn beast on stage. That guy does spins and flips and he's, I I don't move like him. And I thought the fans would notice that. So I was a little insecure. And so I was drinking way heavier before those shows. Mm. Um, and I remember maybe six show in before the concert, I, my hand was doing this because I hadn't drank yet. And I went here, I am jeopardizing my job again. Mm. This is another time where I'm jeopardizing my job. And the only way to fix that shake, I was downing dude, seven, eight shots before the show. Wow. And that's how I got through Europe. 
Um, the band doesn't know this, but they know now. Yeah. And the I, shakes are from withdrawals. From withdrawals. Yeah. And for a guitar player, that's fucked up, dude. Yeah. And there was, there were some times on stage where I was, I could feel my hands slipping and I got through that and we got the call. Um, I think we had five shows left and we got the call. This thing called coronavirus is going around, which was sweeping through Europe at the time. And it hit Italy the hardest, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And we had just came out of Milan. And so <clears throat> we made an emergency stop. We flew from Frankfurt to the States. And I think a week later, our manager called and said, we are not touring for two years. Mm. We are not going to tour till 2022. And I just went, well... You know, I decided to wallow in self-pity and that's, that's mm. when drinking became my job. That, wow. It became my full-time job. Full-time. Hey, off tour, fuck coronavirus, screw the world. And that's where it started into, into Austin. Really. You just said on our last episode too, about how so many people you were with in treatment stuff were hit hard during COVID and you, yeah. you yourself as well. Yeah. Me, myself as well. I mean, yeah. whenever I went to the other treatment center that I, I, I do have appreciation for, uh, for showing me, you know, how to, how to treat people. Um, I, I really felt like, well, they, they were overflowed. I mean, like oh, they, they could max capacity, every pl- treatment center in the U S um, was like that max during capacity pandemic? had to turn people away during the pandemic. They oh, couldn't, yeah. they didn't know how to do it. And they still yeah. have been um, a lot of them at max capacity and stuff. And then they fluctuate, right? Like around the holidays uh, gets a little lower when we were there it was a little lower. Cause it's before yeah. the holidays, Thanksgiving, 21 people is Christmas. low. Yeah. It's low. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the place I was at was ma- maximum beds were 32 and they were having to turn people away. Um, and then after like this time of year, beginning of January, the, there's a huge influx, but with COVID, I mean, that's just crazy. Like they have too, too many people to help and not enough beds to do it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think it's an important part that like COVID with the isolation, yeah. uh, you can drink and no one notices. You can work from home a lot of times, uh, and you can hide it a whole lot better. I mean, I think that was the difference also between me living in Africa with the pygmy people in the Congo like the way that they live in tribes, you can't hide anything like a marital spat or like argument. Like everyone in the village knows because you live in a little twig and leaf hut with three or four people and the thing's like six or eight feet wide. Like you're almost elbow to elbow with people while you sleep. You only go in there to sleep or to rest. Um, And, you know, here it's so easy to hide and you have your entertainment, right? You have your Netflix to binge. You have your Instagram to scroll. You have, you have, anything you want to do, you have your favor to bring you meals. You don't have to go to the grocery store. I remember thinking that was kind of cool in the pandemic. Like, yeah, because Los Angeles, I was in Los Angeles at the time. They actually had a curfew. Mm-hmm. You couldn't leave your house from 8 PM to 6 AM. Right. So me and my roommate were like, it's kind of cool. Like, let's just get a ton of booze, watch a ton of Netflix and eat, you know, yeah. dominoes and all this shit. So I was, I was just like conditioning myself to drink every day and and it be validated. Right. We're in a pandemic. I'm not working. This is okay. I told myself that all the time, dude. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I think that one of the things I bet people that study addiction, the actual scientists and researchers are going to see, just like researchers are saying that the number two cause of death between ages 10 to 24 has been suicide in the U S but now post COVID life, they think that it's going to take number one. And in the UK it did. UK, it's the number one cause of death between ages 10 to 14 suicide. is suicide. Um, but now fentanyl's like, uh, has overshadowed the deaths of alcoholism. Right. And I mean, that's like a hundred thousand people or something crazy and, uh, or 80,000 plus. And, 
I think that you're going to see like, um, I don't know, man, people went from moderate users to hard users or moderate drinkers to hard drinkers. And then a lot of people, their alcoholism, maybe it wasn't full blown alcoholism before, but when the pandemic hit and you got to be at home and you started drinking heavier and heavier, now all of a sudden you shifted from like a hard drinker to an actual real deal alcoholic. Alcoholic for sure. Because now you're drinking. I mean, that's when I started drinking in the mornings. That's Mm. like. And, and it just, everything was, was again, justified from the fact that we had to be in our homes. And so I'm like, well, there's nothing else to do. Yeah. yeah, there is dude. Like I could take walks and work out or work on music, but I, I felt like a kid that could do whatever he wanted. Cause you know, school was that like, I'm not working or whatever. Yeah. And so and you, yeah. you said one of the problems that you had was that, um, was that no one could tell that you were drunk most of the yeah. time. Right. I mean, you haven't shared that yet, Yeah, but you could you basically pass your own sobriety test or yep. you could talk to mom uh, who raised you and yep. she wouldn't know that you were drunk. Can you explain that? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> most recently I, I, once, once I opened up to my mother about my alcoholism, I asked her if she'd ever hurt, could tell I was drunk on the phone and she goes, Oh, well there was that, there was that one time. And I went, what one time she's like, well, you, you called me from Los Angeles and I could tell you were slurring. And I, I, I do remember that day. It's like a day where I think I finished a bottle of whiskey. So I was Usually when I called my mom drunk, it was, I was just drunk, but this, that time I was really messed up, but I go, mom, do you realize I've, I've talked to you probably 20, 30 times blackout drunk. She goes, no. I'm like, could you tell? She goes, no. Wow. So my thing since I was a teenager is I just don't slur. And and like I said, if I finish a bottle, yeah, but going out with friends, going to bars, shots and beers, no slurring. I've been pulled over three times by police officers drunk. And they never asked me to get out of the car once. One of those times I hit a cop. Wow. I was. What do you mean you hit a cop? I was, went to my dad's place of work. Yeah. My dad works at a casino in town. He runs sound, went and had shots, beer, shots, beers. I mean, on the way to the casino, I had a car full of friends with bottles in the back po- taking pulls, right? So I left the casino with a buddy and it was my friend's car. And my friend warned me, the brakes are touchy. You have to push them in all the way or they don't. Stop all the way. And I remember him telling me that, but I was drunk. So I didn't really think about it. And so I'm pulling out of this casino. There's a cop coming toward me and taking a a left turn. And I turn after him to go up this hill and I break and the brakes don't work. And I bump into the cop. Yeah. So not only am I drunk, uh, there's bottles under the seats and there's cans in the back of the car. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm fucked. I'm getting a DUI and I'm going to jail. Like there's no other way out of this. So he's in front of me. I hit him. He says on the loudspeaker, pull around my vehicle, go to the top of the hill and take a right turn off your car. So I do that, puts the the light on me. He comes right up to the car and looks at me and I just start talking and I'm not slurring. I'm like, officer, I have no excuse. This is my friend's car. His name's Brandon. He's right. He lives right over here. Here's the registration. The brakes failed. You can get in the car right now and try it if you like. Here's my license. Like I was just, and he goes, give me the license and whose car is this? And I told him and he ran the plates and it checked out and he comes back, shine the light in the back seat. But my friends put those bottles under the seats. Thank God, dude, if they had left one Bud Light can out, I'd be screwed. Yeah. How did the smell just not like overwhelm? I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> yeah. All three times that I've drank and drove and got pulled over. I'm like, is he not smelling my breath? <laughs> Cause he there's each time they're standing, he's not in my window. He's, Maybe you metabolize it some weird way. Where Maybe. You don't smell well, they, they honestly Maybe. said the science behind it is, is alcoholics and addicts metabolize the substances differently than the normal person. Yeah. Like that's the actual science behind Slower. it. Slower. 
Yeah, it's slower. So it's not coming out of your pores probably right away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I remember that that um, tidbit is that alcoholics process alcohol three to 10 times slower than a non-alcoholic. So maybe that was the case, but he just, in this instance, he goes, drive back home to your friend's house. Don't take any hills. And I'm sitting there going, I'm drunk as shit. And he didn't even ask to check the brakes, right? So this comes into the the um, God moments thing that, that mm, we yeah. talked about at the yes. ranch. I'd love to get into those. Which we could get into those. Yeah. Um, I, I Before going to the ranch, I, wasn't, I didn't necessarily believe in God. And I, I was the guy that preached the Bible of I don't know. Because I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if there's a God or if, if there isn't. So who am I to say? And I kind of left it at that. And from being at the ranch... Not only did I feel something extremely powerful with all of you guys in the room when we would have those process groups and seeing everyone talk, I was feeling this electricity that I couldn't explain, but I went, that's not God. Hmm. That's not anything, you know? Um, But talking with a few of the guys, they just asked me, are there any moments in your life where you were like, how did I get out of this situation or how did I survive? And I thought about these cop situations. Like no one gets drunk, hits a cop with their car, and then doesn't get asked to come out or take a field sobriety test, mm-hmm. especially yeah. when he goes, where were you coming from? I said, the the casino, which is where people go to drink. And it was nighttime. Yeah. Too, nighttime. Right? I, I, I'm just like, okay, that's a good point. I can't remember which guy was telling me this. He's like, yeah. God moment, bro. And then he goes, how many times have you uh, withdrawn by yourself? You know, how many times have you tried to, to ride it out yourself? I'm like, oh, 20. He goes, 20. 20 times and you can die the first time you, you can withdraw the first. You should always Alcohol seek. will kill you if you try to withdraw by yourself, not medically mm-hmm. uh, attended to. Always monitored. seek medical advice when you withdraw, when, you, when you're on a yeah. bender or drinking hard. I yeah. didn't know that. And I did it over 20 times in my bed with horrible body cramps. And, you know, it's a three-day thing. And they're like, you could have died any of those times. You don't think that's a, there's something, there's something looking out for mm-hmm. you. Yeah. And it, it opened my mind to the thought of a higher power. Right. Um, and I was always the guy that was like, well, if I can't prove it, if you know, Anthony doesn't know yet, like I'm not going to believe in it. But the best thing one of the counselors said to me in treatment was, if you could understand your higher power, it's not much of a higher power, is it? Mm. And I went, you got me. Yeah. You got me, dude. Like if you can fully understand and comprehend it, right? I can't comprehend earth. It's way more massive than I am. I can't comprehend space and time. So it just, when he said that, I went, I don't have to know everything in life. Like yeah. that's been my whole MO is like, well, I got to know, I got to know facts. Let me ask you this. Oh, can you comprehend that energy, that power that whenever there's 190,000 people at a concert and you guys are what four five, six guys up there on stage, five, um, yeah. five and you guys are playing and all of a sudden everyone is kind of coming together, jamming. I remember yeah. this guy, Evan, his, his, uh, his theory and, and conception of God uh, and his higher power was like a concert was when everyone comes together and it takes everyone's energy, everyone's focus, everyone being in the present moment. Yeah. And then that bringing that all consciousness or that, that power, that energy yeah. that brings shout, everyone shout together. Shout out to Evan on that one yeah. because he, that was one of the things I brought up in process group, mm-hmm. right? Where I saw all the guys in there had their, their uh, conception of a higher power. And to me, it looked like you had this, they had this buddy, this friend that they relied on that they talked to and took their burdens away. And I was sitting there as an agnostic going, well, I don't have that. And so I remember opening up to you guys going, Hey, I don't, I'm not, I don't have faith. I don't have a God. Um, I feel out of place here. 
and you all just told me it, it will come to you, man, whatever that conception is will come to you. And Evan, he was sitting right next to me. Mm. So I remember him turning to me this close and he said, Anthony, he's so philosophical yeah, when he yeah. speaks dude. Uh-huh. this kid we're talking about. It's so smart. He's so smart. He's such a genius. Uh, and when he talks, you listen. And so he just goes, Anthony, when you're on stage and you have a hundred thousand people in front of you and the electricity's flowing through your body, can you explain that? <laughs> and I went, damn. I was like, no, I can't. He's like, do, do you ever just think that that's just a moment in time where there's God is speaking through people and you're giving God to them? And I went, man, never thought about that stuff. Like mm. this is what I was mentioning earlier on the podcast about communicating with people instead of staying in your own head, which is what I did for so long. Yeah. Hearing that from this guy that I met two days earlier changed my perspective of what a higher power could be. It yeah. could be, you could see it in other people. It doesn't have to have a body or be Buddha or whatever. I just learned those moments happened at the ranch. Yeah. And I went, man, this, this, is, this is making sense to me now. Well, I just got a notice a minute ago that we might have a little bit of a hard stop that we didn't know about. So in the last seven minutes, I definitely want to talk about a couple of things. And one was, um, basically you did have to go to the emergency room or an ambulance or paramedics, right? And you got there with a doctor, right? Yeah. And he asked you a question. Do you, are you just going to go home to your whiskey? And you had a response, right? Yeah, I did. What was the response? How dare you? How dare you? Yeah. How dare you? And you got home though. And what happened? I drank the rest of the whiskey um, and continued on another day and a half bender. Mm. Um, That was, that was my worst bender here in Austin Yeah, because I was alone. I mean, God bless my girlfriend, man. Blaze is, is such an amazing woman. And she put up with way more than she needed to, but she knew when to get out of the house when I was in my modes Right, and she would go stay with family. Right. And instead of getting better, I, I was so upset about that. I would drink. Mm-hmm. And so that was a moment where I did call, I called paramedics to the house. Cause I just, I was out of control and I thought I should just have someone check on me. Right. And they came and I was fine. Statit- or stat- what is it called? Not stats. Statistically. Just like my yeah. blood pressure. Oh, oh yeah. 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 Stats. Yeah. I guess you would say yeah, you're, uh- um, they checked all that. Diagnostics. Vitals. 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 There we go. I'm sitting here like, what is <laughs> it? Yeah. Maybe I get hit Vitals. in the head for a living too. Um, uh, you just drink a lot. <laughs> yeah. So they I've took me in. I've got a lot in. of drugs. They yep. took me in and, uh, and, and yeah, that, that doctor was like, you should stay here and detox. And I said, no, I'm going to go home. And I was so offended that she, she mentioned that I was going to go drink. But of course, as an addict, you go back and do that. And uh, yeah, that bender, eventually that led me to my um, sponsor now. Um, uh, my neighbor came over the day after I got back from that and we got me a sponsor and he's my sponsor today. And wow. so that came And when your that. neighbor came over, is that the same neighbor that said they felt led to come to your yeah. door? Yes. What did he say? He said he f- heard a voice from God to come check on me. Huh. So his higher power, his higher his power said, told him to come check, on, check me. on you. And when he came into the house, paramedics were there with me again. I'd called them twice mm. and he just was like, my, you know, my inkling was right. And so he, he helped me out big time. Yeah. And he's the one that helped you find your sponsor. No, but he's the one that or called my like, girlfriend, girlfriend who okay. then called my mother, who right. then called my, who is my sponsor. Rusky. Rusty. 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 Yeah. 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 So he, he's the one that kind of got the ball rolling and like this guy needs some help. Yeah. And Rusty's put you against the door and said, I love you too much or something like that. Well, what he, was that? he kidnapped me. He kidnapped you. He kidnapped me. Lovingly kidnapped me. He, uh, the, the family conspired on one of my vendors to 
have him come pick me up and drive me to his house in San Antonio and shake my tree. Essentially. I didn't know this. I thought I was going to lunch with him Mm. and he took me and on the way down, he's like, I don't know if you noticed, but we're not going to lunch. You're going to my house and I'm going to get you detox. And I flipped out and I made all these threats. I was going to call the police. I was being an ass. And he said, I love you too much to turn this car around. Mm. And I was yelling at him. I mean, he's, he's a guy that I love and I grew up with and I, I was cursing and he's like, I love you too much. I'm not turning the car around. And he shook my tree and told me, you know, to take a deep inward look at myself. And that's the day I decided or came to realize I was an alcoholic out of control. Mm. Wow. Man, I think we're going to have you on the podcast uh, one more time, uh, at least, or I mean, uh, at least one more time, because I would love to hear more of your stories. I, damn, the conversation was awesome. I'm so grateful for you. But I have been saving something because I wonder if you could grab your phone. I don't know that you could find it right oh, away, that, but I do know that I would like to ask you the story at least. We have, to, at we least, have to go story. Okay, let's go story. I'll do story because I'll tell you yeah. why I don't have that, what you're asking oh, about. Oh, okay. Yeah. No worries. Um, but I would love to hear the story. Oh, man. I wish I could find that right now. Okay. It's okay. This oh. is what I would say. Whenever people are struggling, you, you came into the ranch. I saw you. You were so concerned and you were so bummed out and you were also so in your head about, I got to find this God thing or I don't, you know, like it's, it's this higher power and, uh, everyone else has got it. And I don't, you're stressing yourself out. And then I remember the moment of you sharing the story and I'm like, bro, bro, I know that that was for me. You sharing that with me, like self can't see self, but I was just like, look at this. I remember I had to, I repeated it back to you and I had to, I wanted to repeat it back to you so you could like hear what you're about to share with us now. So I know that this is going to land. And I know this is going to help somebody out there. Well, this is how ridiculous I was in the moment, not noticing how powerful this moment was because I was so deep in my alcoholism at this point. But the story is, is I, uh, in the pandemic, it must've been summer of 2020. I went on a three-day bender involving drugs and alcohol. Very dangerous. I was doing copious amounts and I came to on a Monday morning and I Ubered home from this place I was at doing the partying. And I laid in bed all day and it was, it was the most horrific withdrawal symptoms I've ever had. Cause I was doing multiple things mm. for three days and I was physically shaking. I couldn't lift my head off of the pillow. And so I was yelling to my roommate to come in and spoon feed me an acai bowl. I mean, that's how bad it was. And I still wasn't going to the hospital. Wow. No way was I going to the hospital. I don't want anyone to know about this. I don't want it on record and I'm too embarrassed. I'm going to write it out. Like I did for those 20 other ones. It Which got each one of them could have killed you. Each one, this one for sure. I have no doubt in my mind I would have died. Yeah. It was so horrific. And I get a, I feel my phone buzzing. It's on silent, but I I can't really touch it because I'm so weak and I I let it buzz. And I muster up the strength and I look and it's, it's a number from my hometown, but it's a random number I've never seen before. And I muster up the strength to open the phone and there's a voicemail and I hit, I hit play and it's a little girl. She's 13, 14 years old. And she says, hi, I don't know who this is supposed to go to. I dialed a random phone number and I just wanted to tell you that God wants you to get help and God loves you and he wants you to be okay. Again, I'm so confused. My mother's name is Robin. And if you need to call back and and contact her, but I just dialed this number randomly and I need to tell you that God wants you to survive and to be okay. And And she stopped. And in that moment, I was like, wrong number. 
Like yeah. I didn't even think wow. anything of it, right? But, but looking back now, I'm I'm like almost getting choked up thinking about it uh, now because that girl saved my life because I I couldn't shake the fact how odd it was that she picked my number, but it, something went, Anthony, let's be real here, let's go to the hospital. Like she's the reason I went, let's let's do something about this, right? Mm. Even if this god thing isn't real, Let's let's take this as a little bit of something. And I yelled for my roommate. We went to the emergency room and they were like, dude, you're in bad shape. My blood pressure, my heart was beating out of control. I stayed there for six hours and got IV'd and all this stuff. And looking wow. back now, I just am like, it's so powerful, man. Yeah. That doesn't happen. Yeah. That's not a God wink. That's like a God shake. That's it like, should. I'm trying Hello? to get your attention. <laughs> you idiot. Please let me help you and let other people help you and just ask for help. I just, just ask for help. And now the running joke is that I want to call her back to thank her, but yeah, when she's, when she's 18. 18. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> when she's 18 or call Robin and let her know yeah. and what a story, because I think that would increase her hope, her faith, her, her love to be like, wow, you know, acting out in that prompting. Yeah helped somebody in such a deep and meaningful way. Yeah, that it mattered. That it mattered. It mattered. It did. She was she, she yeah. was right to do what she was led to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pretty incredible. So and I think incredible. that's awesome about like even a lot of people talk about childlike faith, right? Like sometimes they just go for it, you know, they might try to climb a mountain or or jump off a swing set or, you know, like, you know, I know that that'd be really scary for me if I got some prompting. Call this random number right now. Yeah, I right? might have some. I would ignore that. There's it. no way. I'd be like, okay, I'm dreaming. I'm clearly trying for her to dial it. And this do number. It, I'm just like eight. This. This. No, like she, the exact she number. Was, yeah. She was for real. She yeah. was like, being. She's like a medium or something. Yeah. I'm led. I'm trying to locate that because right after we got out, I went and looked for it, and I didn't have it. But my brother, my younger brother, has it because I sent him the whole. I sent him uh, the screenshot of the text and the recording of it. So he's uh, looking for it because I knew you wanted mm, to hear it. Yeah, yeah. no, that's awesome, yeah. man. Well, that's what we'll do whenever we have the second go around on cool. this. I love you. I love you too, bro. I'm so grateful for you. Maybe uh, if we got a quick second, what would be one of the biggest things, takeaways from time at treatment? Uh, fellowship. Um, mm. Talking to your family, talking to friends, because I just feel like a lot of people that are struggling, they're embarrassed. Mm. They don't yeah. want to be looked, they don't want to be dubbed an alcoholic or an addict because society dubs, you know, we look at them as such, you know, the guy under the bridge or whatever. And it's not the case. It doesn't discriminate. Wonderful people suffer from this. So just, just reach out, just yeah. call your mom right now and tell yeah. them or your dad right now and tell them, um, they will be there for you. You can get help. We got help. Mm -hmm. You know, it's possible. So, so speak up yeah. about your demons. One of the most impactful guys for me at treatment was Brandon. Seeing Brandon, you, you guys riffing it on the guitar. You were playing because one night we somehow got a guitar yeah. for Mason and then you're ripping it and, uh, or whatever you call it, throwing these riffs down and then Brandon just belts it out. That was crazy. And to know that he, um, had gone through homelessness and had gone through all sorts of wild stuff, almost died, had like some open heart surgery and this yeah. battery beeping right. in his heart. He almost died from his addiction and all this stuff. And to hear how smart he was, man, yeah. to see him find a power greater than himself, to see breakthrough after being to treatment multiple times, just be like this guy that thought he had no hope to see the light come on. Beautiful people oh, there, man. man. It was incredible. People. So thank you so much, bro. Yeah. I love you, man. Love Can't you wait too. to meet Tobin. Amber, yeah. Arrow, come to a concert. Where can people check you out? So on Instagram, I am at Twanista. 
uh, T-W-A-N-I-S-T-A. Okay. And then at Papa Roach, if you want to check out some of the new music, we have uh, three three brand new songs out right now. So Spotify, Apple Music, all that. What would be one of the songs? Kill the Noise. Kill the Noise. And That's what would the name be... of the tour. I looked it up. Ooh. Very good. That Kill looks, the Noise tour. Looks good. Coming looks good. You. You're going to be in Texas. but So you'll be going, right? I mean, it starts the 1st of March and you'll be... 1st of March, we're hitting it. Um, and then cool. we have a festival in Mexico right after, actually. We're, yeah. We'll be hitting as well. Oh, nice. So Kill the Noise is a... It's just a banger track. Yeah. It's, it's got a lot of heat Did on it. Did you help it, write so. that song? Yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. what's one of your favorite songs you've wrote that someone else can go check out? Ironically, Falling Apart. Falling Apart. <laughs> yes. I was going to. Yeah. I love that song and uh, I butchered it that night, but yeah. not anymore. That's probably why they really looked at you like, why are you yeah. messing up your on, song? Dude, dude, you wrote it. Yeah. Okay. And then any other big things to check out from Papa Roach? Uh, our record's going to be dropping this year. I don't have the date yet, okay. but if you just keep up on our socials, we're on Facebook, Instagram. We're on TikTok, baby. So yeah. I'm sure we'll be making some announcements on there. But I am so proud and stoked for this album. We actually rented out a house in Temecula and made the record in the house Ooh, with cool. all the gear in the living room and stuff. It was a really cool experience. So brand new record yeah. uh, dropping this year. All right. I guess we can maybe get a round two with you sometime. Absolutely. All right, man. Love you, bro. Thanks Love so much. Hey, don't forget to send your overcome stories to overcomepodcast at gmail.com. And also rate, review, subscribe, and follow Overcome with Justin Wren.